Rating an intro to a review podcast of the original Ghostbusters is a minefield of bad puns referencing the theme song, or it's full of grandiose statements about how special it is. So let's keep it simple. The movie's a classic. Let's discuss. Welcome everyone to The Collector's Cut. I am Peter and joining me as always is David. There is no David, only Zool. How much practice did you put into that voice? Not at all. I do that voice on the regular. Anytime Mm. a telemarketer calls, it's always a fun time. Ah, very good, very good. Yes, welcome everyone. It's the Movie Podcast. This is the Collector's Cut, and today is the start of a new season. As you might have guessed, I mean, I say guess, you see the title of the episode, but we're here today to talk about Ghostbusters, and we'll be working through the franchise, building up to the new entry, Frozen Empire, when it hits in mm-hmm. March, which is later this month, of course. Yeah. I'm sure this won't be any sort of problem where somehow in between recording this and when Frozen Empire's supposed to show up, Sony's just not going to change it again, just to mess with all of our schedules. <laughs> yeah, this was supposed to be a week off, but then they pushed mm-hmm. the Ghostbusters movie out a week forward, so we had to get these started coming out a week earlier. So yep. here we are. Uh, we're going to get into it. It's Ghostbusters. We'll start spoiler-free if you so happen to not know what Ghostbusters is. And just want some general feelings, and we'll give you some warnings before we get the spoilers. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll, we'll dive into Obviously, this is a movie that we've both seen before. It's uh, one of the biggest pop culture things for our generation growing up, pretty much. So uh, it's always weird to talk about these ones because it's like, well, what do you say? That I feel yeah. like you've seen the movie so many times. Like, how do you go through it? But. Hey. It's actually been a significantly long time since I have just sat down and watched this beginning to end, but I felt like at least every five minutes there was some line uttered that was just permeated through pop culture enough that it was always going to mm. live in my mind et- eternally. Yeah, so just before we get into it, I'll just remind you, if you are watching on YouTube, please do hit the like button if you're enjoying the show. It helps us out a bunch, and of course, me and David do a couple of monthly bonus shows for patrons so uh, we'll tell you more about those at the end of the episode but uh, we'll get into Ghostbusters which uh, you know the three guys decide to open up a a ghost hunting business after they're kicked out of their university for doing a bunch of nonsense science that the university doesn't respect or agree with (laughs) this movie is aka how do you monetize the afterlife and who boy (laughs) does it work yeah well I think I mean, obviously, the basic premise of Ghostbusters is you've got a, a police slash fire station, whatever, that type of emergency service, but mm-hmm. it's for catching ghosts. That's the basic premise of the thing. But yeah. when you watch the first one, and I think this is something that all the later movies or cartoons or everything that's being created because Ghostbusters is a pop culture phenomenon and they mm-hmm. want to do more of it, is that this original movie is kind of this cynical like money scheme like obviously not for all the characters but for peter venkman especially uh, bill murray's character he immediately just sees dollar signs and when you pay attention to how 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 he plays things throughout the movie he's constantly just selling people things he's putting on a show he's constantly Mm -hmm. there's a there's a line in the montage in the middle of this movie where he says no job is too big and no fee is too big and i'm like wait a minute you don't get to decide that part that's that's for your customers to decide if there's no fee that's too big 
<laughs> I mean, I, I guess it's the idea that if only one company is selling a particular service in an industry, they can dictate whatever prices they want. They can just say like, yeah, ghost removal, that costs like $10,000. Who's going to argue that? I mean, you got to cover four, then later in the movie, five people's full-time salaries. And if they're only going to get one ghost job, uh, you know, every couple of weeks, that has to cover yeah. quite a bit of time for these people, right? Yeah. That makes sense. They're, they're in the same sort of market as like the Fabergé egg makers. There's only <laughs> one sold every few years, but who boy, do they make their money's worth. Oh dear. I assume you like Ghostbusters just to get that part of the show done. I mean, I guess, kind of. It's okay. <laughs> of course I do. This movie, I, I was actually shocked at how much, despite the fact I had seen this movie before, I was still finding myself genuinely laughing at the jokes as they came in. There's so many things that I wish I could have been in like an original theater showing when this oh, first sure. came out. Just before it permeated pop culture, before everybody knows how it went, I'd love to see how these jokes landed the first time around. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of jokes in it. Like, if you if you look at my viewings of this as a child, because, you know, I grew up watching this, and then mm -hmm. the viewings from maybe my late teens onwards, where there was a lot of lines and jokes that hit differently or I suddenly got the, the humor. Because I think this is the other thing, is that this was not necessarily designed from scratch to be a like fan-favorite thing for kids. Obviously, it oh, turned yeah. out there was a bunch of things they could make toys of, and it led to the cartoon and all those other things. But you know, there's lines in this movie that are straight up for adults. Like, you know, at one point someone says, I want you inside me, and... Yeah, there's no there's no sugarcoating what that means. Like it just yeah. <laughs> so that's like sprinkled in throughout. I mean, I, the line from early on in the movie. Uh, I don't want to quote too many things before we get to spoilers, but mm -hmm. there's a line very very early on which you know I, I don't know what my reaction one was like when I was young. I assume I just didn't think anything of it, but but the first time I watched this, maybe in my late teens or whenever that viewing was when I was a bit older, and he asked the librarian, are you menstruating right now? And the the, the, right. the head librarian sort of peeks in and goes, what's that got to do with that thing? And Bill Murray, completely deadpan, turns and goes, back off, I'm a scientist. That was that was actually before we got to the Zool line. That was going to be my line pick at the beginning here. <laughs> what back off, I'm a scientist. Because you're right, uh, it's just so deadpan humor. It's fantastic the whole way through. This, I think this is one of the... I mean, Bill Murray's entire like comedy stylings is kind of in the same sort of vein, but j this is one of the most like dry humor movies I've seen in a long, long time, where there is no real slapstick. It's more just, here's Bill Murray delivering a zinger over and over and over again, and it always manages to land. And from what I understand, a lot of it was ad-lib. Like, he was, mm. you know, I think this is a, something that happens a lot with comedies, but I think there's just a lot of different takes of him just doing different lines. Like, you know, the same moment happens, but his line responding right. to it, he'll do like maybe five, 10, 15 <laughs> versions of it. And then they'll just pick which one they think is the funniest to go into mm -hmm. the, the final cut. I, it's, it's very impressive. There was a moment in this, it's towards the very end. So without spoiling anything where, uh, Bill Murray's character is essentially like saying, okay, I, I didn't understand that bit. Tell me, explain it to me. Like I'm an idiot. And then uh, Dan Aykroyd's character comes back and be like, 
you didn't study. And there's just a half second before they cut where you see Bill Murray break. You see him <laughs> just like start laughing as they cut away. And I feel like all the characters got to improv to some extent. Yeah, I think this is the other thing about this movie is that first and foremost, it is a comedy, right? Mm-hmm. As much as it works as a as a movie with a fantastical plot about catching ghosts and there's a third act where a big thing's happening and they have to save mm-hmm. the city, as much as that's there, it is first and foremost a comedy and it's written very dryly to kind of facilitate that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of impressive that it does work as a as a... A spectacle movie as well on top of that and it is kind of why it stands out i think and sort of stood the test of time and had this life that has went into cartoons and sequels and all these other things i i agree but i do think that on a critical viewing of it you can definitely tell that there is the scenes that are specifically forwarding the plot Mm. and then there's scenes that are kind of the bit there are scenes where it is a comedic scene and it's all working up towards one or even several punchlines. And because of that, the first, I'd say, definitely the first act, probably the first act and a half, kind of feel a bit more loosey-goosey. It doesn't feel like any one thing is leading into the next directly. It's only once you hit about the halfway point in the movie where it starts feeling like, okay, we're working up towards this bigger threat towards the end. And they still work in the comedy, but it's a lot less scenes devoted solely to the comedy. I kind of agree and I kind of disagree because I actually watching it again I was really paying attention this movie's like an hour and 45 and mm-hmm. it's very tightly paced and I think every single scene in that first half that you were kind of saying there I think it all does advance the story all of it's setting up right. why they're doing what they're doing how they're setting up that introducing the new characters that are relevant to what's happening later it's just that the actual big threat that the, the last act's about isn't really brought up until you know yeah, halfway through I guess the movie. I, I guess it's poor wording on my part. It's not so much that the scenes don't set up the story. Everything, like you said, tightly written. It all works for the story. It's specifically the threat itself only shows up like halfway through. Yeah. And then they have to deal with that. Which which is fine. And I, I think it's something that I think a lot of comedies have to deal with. Like I, I just watched this week uh No Hard Feelings, that Jennifer Lawrence movie mm. that came out last year. And that that had the same thing, where it's, it's this very comedy... It's a comedy overall, but it's a very comedy-focused first half. But then mm. as it gets into its second half, and they actually want to, like, build to an ending where they have kind of a, a climax and sort of, oh, we've told a story about these characters, the the jokes kind of slow down and get kind of less so in the, the back half. Right. And I think a lot of comedies suffer from that. I don't think Ghostbusters does, for two reasons. One, it's still very funny, the entire back mm-hmm. half of the movie. But two... The actual spectacle it turns into, because I feel like when a comedy does that, usually it turns into a mediocre drama to try and like end right. the story. Here, yeah. it's actually a really good, like, fantastical plot about saving the city, and there's a lot yeah. of really cool moments, and there's, uh, I wouldn't say cool action per se, I wouldn't quite say that, but there's a lot of fun effects. There's a lot of good, there's some stop motion, there's a lot of great map patents, there's, you know, optical effects, all these kind of things, yeah. and they all look good. I'm not saying they all look realistic, but they all look good, and that I, I think is a big difference between you know some modern effects where you get just like if you get like a bad CG or green screen thing, it just looks bad. Yeah, I think that each of the ghosts, as we see them individually, all look great. I don't think there's any of them that stand out as like bad. But sure. there are a few effects, especially as we're just hitting the third act, where 
it feels very 80s it's not that it's bad but it's definitely of the time oh yeah of. i love it like i like the yeah i know i think i know exactly the thing you're talking about and it, mm-hmm. yeah it sticks out but i kind of love the charm of it because it does feel right. so of that era uh, but it's kind of i i think I think what impresses me is, as well watching this again is how it kind of handles its cast of characters where mm. Venkman is probably the closest to the lead character. He gets a little bit more time and that's probably just because he's actually the one who's maybe trying to pursue a love interest whereas the others don't really have something separate from being a Ghostbuster. Yeah. But I think by the time you get to the end and you've got the four Ghostbusters assembled to take on the threat... The movie's done this kind of neat thing where it gives you the first big adventure, but it's before Winston's added to the cast. So mm. you get kind of this this twofer in the third act where it's like, okay, you've got the full lineup of four Ghostbusters. They're doing a big thing. And they've successfully told us that they've been working consistently via montage and whatnot, but it doesn't. none of it feels repetitive because we've not been like doing, oh, this is them going out to their second call in the movie, the third call. It's right. very wise with how it dishes out its its plot beats and how it uses those things. And part of that's probably a cost-saving measure because, hey, there's only so many big effect sequences we want to do to save true, money. True, But sometimes those are the things that lead to things feeling a bit tighter because you're, you're having to pick your moments a bit, bit more wisely. The, the Jaws effect, one would say. If you yeah. don't have the money to do a specific effect, you just don't show it and it make it work for you instead of against. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the movie, shouldn't... Uh, somewhat in new york I mean, i'm not sure there's definitely some scenes that are definitely in the city uh mm-hmm. i'm not sure like how much of the, the sets and stuff were maybe the interiors were shot elsewhere or whatever but um there's at least one part where they must have recreated like a, a part of a street because obviously the road like kind of like, breaks up and does a bunch mm-hmm. of things so they must have yeah. recreated a bit if if not possibly that part of the street was just always the fake thing they made the whole movie yeah. i'm not sure I'm looking at the filming locations on IMDb, and basically it's all just either they were on location in New York or they were on a soundstage in LA. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> so. Yeah, cool. So, no, like, like uh, Ghostbusters is very good, and I don't think anyone's yeah. going to be shocked no. and appalled to hear us say that. So there is one thing that I was paying special attention to this time around, mm. and I guess it doesn't have so much to do with the movie, but it is something that's part of the is the, the the fanfare that is Ghostbusters, and that is the soundtrack, specifically the licensed music that plays. And obviously, everybody knows the Ghostbusters theme. Like I, everyone, it's it's yeah everywhere. I would say there's two other really memorable songs in this as well, actually. Oh, all right, because that's the point I was going to argue is that I didn't find any of the songs memorable on this soundtrack. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard anybody reference any of the other songs in any capacity. I mean, maybe I've not heard in different circles. I've not heard them in different contexts, but I remember them vividly from this movie. Like, okay, uh, there's a song that plays as the third act's kicking off. Uh, mm. which is very memorable. And then there's a song called Saving the Day by Alessi that plays kind of in the build-up to the big sort of finale, uh, which is very memorable because of the part of the movie it plays in. Um, and they use it a few times as well. They kind of they actually do a few bars of it a, like a couple of scenes earlier, which I didn't remember. And I was like, oh, they right. played it a little bit early. I wasn't expecting that. I'd forgotten that. I, I remember e- hearing each of the songs as they were in the movie, but maybe it's just I haven't watched it as much as you. 
I can't, you tell me to sing a few bars right now, I could not at all. Whereas the Ghostbusters theme, that entire thing is imprinted in my brain from beginning to end. I mean, I can't sing anything, but I can do... Pete, stop, it's too close to copyright. You're, you're running the gamble here. I mean, it's in my head. I, I could do it easily. No, but yeah, exactly. It's, I... Yeah, I, I think there's a few memorable songs in there. I okay. think the, the score is is pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the score reminded me of something. There was some other track every time they did like the little, uh, God, I forgot the musical term for it, but like the the musical cue that always plays every time the lead motif. That's it. Um, every time they play that little motif, I I heard another score like starting in my head. And it reminded me of something, but by the end of the movie, I still couldn't place it. It's going to drive me insane. I'm sorry, I don't know what you're thinking of. I can't, I can't yeah. help you. But like, there's no way I can even like describe it because otherwise, it'd just be the Ghostbusters score. Like, I can't. <laughs> there's no way for me to search this. Uh, my best bet for you would be to look at the composer, look what else he's done, because it's there's, there's a good chance it's the same composer. It's not a guarantee, but there's a reasonable chance. Yeah, give it a shot. Yeah, I'm uh, not actually sure who did composing on this. I'll check. Continue. Yeah, no, I, I think you know one of the things again that a lot of the later stuff dwells on too much, but is something to be very, very commended in the first film is just how seemingly effortless it creates an entire suite of you know outfits and props. You know the proton mm-hmm. packs, the traps. Of course, the cars, arguably the, the most iconic movie cars, that and the DeLorean yep. kind of, you know, go blow for blow as to which one's actually the more favorite by people. One year right after another, 84 to 85, that was a good year for car props. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think I like um, the practicality of some of it. Like, you know, the car's just a hearse that's been turned mm. into the Ecto-1. So, so, and one of the details I like about it you see later on in the movie is that they've got like a rack that has all the proton packs on it and it's literally just the, the slidey thing for the, the coffin that would be in the horse anyway. Yeah. And I thought that's a neat little touch. Was, this is how they've transformed it into into this. Mm-hmm. Um, like I, I, I just I think those little details are very good. And I do think later movies like they have too much reverence for all this stuff where they, they treat it all like it's special. And part of what makes it work in this movie and feel kind of cool is they don't dwell on it. They don't focus on most of it. The car right. gets a little bit of a spotlight, but you know, like the the first, the only time they really focus on the proton packs as a thing is played for a joke because they're scared of it because it might cause a nuclear explosion. <laughs> yeah, it's literally everything in this movie is shown to us to be the cheapest, jankiest, junkiest thing that they could manage to make work. And that goes from their car to the proton packs to their place that they like start out in. All of it is just jank that they've managed to duct tape together. So the idea that these later movies will come in and be like, oh, but this this is like our holy text. This is the thing that is revered above all others. It's like, bro, they literally said in the movie they bought it for like <laughs> a buck fifty. Yeah, I mean, the later movies, like obviously we're going to do them all. So I don't want to get too mm-hmm. much into this and I'll have refreshed points to make once we watch them yes. but from memory the 2016 movie straight up does a montage of how they make all the the things or how they develop them all because mm-hmm. it has to do the origin of all the things yeah. uh whereas afterlife it's like 
a slow motion shot of the proton pack is all and close-ups of all the lights turning on because it's this magical thing that you all remember from ghostbusters but you watch this movie and it's just something they have and it's it's neat that it's there it's just good mm-hmm. prop work because it's memorable without being this like annoying focus yeah mm-hmm. so yeah i don't know it's, it's one of those things i will definitely have more words on that in the month's time Yes, yes, I'm sure we will have many things to say about the later <laughs> movies. It's actually one of the things that I was thinking about as I was watching this is that it's kind of wild because Dan Aykroyd for years and years after Ghostbusters 2 was trying to will Ghostbusters mm-hmm. 3 into existence and it never quite happened. You know, obviously eventually there was another Ghostbusters movie but not in that form with the original cast and all that. Yeah. And all I could think was is that if the executives of today were in charge, there is no way there wouldn't have been a Ghostbusters 3. Like, oh, it, yeah. look at them right now. Like, they're trying to make it this franchise. It's this consistent thing that they can keep selling merch for, that they can keep bringing movies out for. There'll probably mm-hmm. be a TV show at some point. <laughs> like, it's bound to happen because that's the world we live in now. And it's just nuts to me that Ghostbusters 2, well, it may not have been as successful as the first one, I, I can't imagine them giving up. Like, the executives today, oh, yeah. I can't imagine giving up after Ghostbusters 2. Um, you know, and maybe exactly. some of the cast didn't want to do it or whatever. That's always possible. But... Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like that was a thing of um, Bill Murray was basically like, eh, I've done my time, whatever. I don't need to worry about it again. Yeah, yeah. Until they give him, like, an actual boatload of money. Yeah, but, but today, um, today they would, though. In fact, they have Yeah, done. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's... I, I just... I pulled up the Sony Picture Franchises uh, Wikipedia page, and, like, every single thing on this page has had a new installment within the last 10 years. There's not a single thing that they've let just simmer for any period of time. Yeah, they brought Bad Boys back. They brought mm-hmm. Men in Black back. The, the, the... I see Charlie's Angels has had a few reboots there. Terminator, for better or for worse. I mean that's not Spider- only theirs. That's 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 bounced around, but you know, yeah, yeah. And oh, don't even get me started on Madame Web. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to see that. And by see that, I mean have other people see that, and yes, I get yes. to experience the reaction. Yes, I don't want to see it either. That's just yeah. I, <laughs> it's just it is nuts because I think it's in the era where everything, like all the studios, are trying to build their franchises, and you know, obviously Disney kind of got there to the party in a big way first and then mm. warner brothers went oh shit we've been really sitting in all this dc stuff we better get this all going and we've got harry potter and blah 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 and yeah. i love that sony turned and looked at the library and went ghostbusters that's what we've got we should do something with that and it's just, it's the same thing uh like paramount and be like oh more mission impossible sounds like a good idea let's let's do more of those but yeah ghostbusters is very much Sony's biggest one, I would argue. At least from a pop culture perspective, I think it's their biggest one. I mean, I'd argue because of the joint rights of Spider-Man, but yeah, Ghostbusters is the biggest standalone, oh, okay. yeah, for I'll- sure. Spider-Man's a weird one, because it's like, like they make the movies, but it's not theirs. Right. Uh, so, yeah, okay, I admit, yeah, Spider-Man technically, but... Uh, that said, though, they keep making these shitty spin-offs, and that's going to keep devaluing... <laughs> The, the, what are you talking about i need my morbius three damn it look i just i saw a rumor right on twitter about madame webb and i have to mm. share is that apparently there's okay. a line in the movie where someone says i saw this yeah <laughs> when you're responsible you you gain great power 
or something to that effect. It's yeah, like, yeah, it's just the opposite <laughs> of what Uncle Ben said. Which makes no goddamn sense. I, it's It sounds to me like Sony was like, hey, guys, I'm going to run this through Google Translate a few times, and then I'm going to see what we get back out. And that's just what happened here. They fed in the original line and were like, when you are responsible, great power is had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, yeah, another big thing here is the cast. Uh, we mentioned oh, Bill yeah. Murray, of course, Dan Aykroyd, and Harold mm-hmm. Ramis. I'll mention them together because they're also the, the writers of the movie. They co-wrote this film. So I I feel like the base script was Dan Aykroyd and Harold, Harold Ramis, but then they had to give Bill Murray a writing credit for all of his improv. I don't think he actually has a writing credit, though. Does he not? Oh, no, no, no. That's, sorry, it's Rick Moranis on there, which, that's a shock, yeah. Yeah. Uh... No, I mean, I think he probably ad-libbed a lot, but actors don't tend to get writing credits for ad-libbing. Um, yeah, true. I mean, Harold Ramis, obviously, he's, like, everyone knows him as Egon, but he was more of a writer and director, largely, uh, throughout mm-hmm. his career. So, um, it's kind of well, because obviously, uh, Ivan Reitman, who directed the movie, mm-hmm. he went on to do a bunch of comedies with Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger, uh, which I, I really like two of them, actually. Like, I love Twins and Kindergarten Cop. Junior's a bit less so. Uh, yeah. And even kind of did like a sort of almost like a reattempt at a Ghostbusters with a movie called Evolution that was about aliens in the early two thousands. I remember that coming out. Like I've always, I remember when Blockbuster was a thing. I see mm. it, but I never actually watched it. Yeah, I saw that in theaters in two thousand one. I'm so sorry, but it, it, I think it's interesting because. <sighs> I think this is probably the best direction he's ever done, Ivan Reitman. Um, and okay. I think part of that is because he is making this movie that's not just a comedy, even though it's a comedy first. And that leads to, you know, have, having fun with the ghosts and having fun with the the suspense of the... the not so much the horror suspense, like nothing in here is actually scary, but the mm-hmm. idea that, like, you know, when they're in the library and they're sort of sneaking up and they're looking for her, there's a little bit of a spooky tension of, of it. Kind of like the anticipation of them actually encountering the thing, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the... Obviously, uh, our fourth Ghostbuster is Ernie Hudson, uh, yeah. who joins them partway through the movie. Um, I I love his character because he is just 100% of like, yeah, I'm just the new guy. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty much established at a point of, at this point, Bill Murray's character, who's kind of been the audience avatar with... Uh, Dan Aykroyd explaining stuff to him and Harold Ramis explaining stuff to him. He's now fully experienced. So we need to introduce a new audience avatar for these further explanations we're going to have to throw out here. I think it's partly that. I think they've always explained it as they wanted this idea of it growing. So they wanted like an everyman. Like as much as Mm. Bill Murray's character does act as an avatar and that he doesn't obviously know all the things the other two know. He is still a scientist. He still is right. aware of things. I think the point of uh, Winston, Ernie Hudson's character, is that he is just a working man. He does just show up, get the job, and is sort of thrust into this world. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, we have Rick Moranis uh, as as the neighbor. I don't know why I went to him first, because I should have mentioned Sigourney Weaver first. Who, yes. Because that's who his neighbors to, but she is the love interest. She's also the one who kind of gets mixed up in the main ghost plot of the movie, which is why she ends up interacting with the Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's very good. It's kind of funny to think of this as this is post Alien, so this is like she's yeah. already a star for something here. That's I I love looking at Sigourney Weaver's like entire filmography because 
there are certain things where she's like super well known for and then other times she's just like yeah remember i was super well known in that and now i'm starring in this tiny little thing because why not i can do whatever i want i was ripley yeah, I probably saw her in this first, because I definitely saw Ghostbusters at a younger age than I did Alien, but obviously... I mean, I would hope so. It's a much more child-appropriate film. <laughs> but I, I do definitely think of her as Ripley first. Like, you mm. know, that, 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 that even, even seeing that later, like, that has completely overtaken what I think of her as. That's but, fair. Uh, I, mean, no, she's, I mean, she's good in this. She's kind of, again, she's kind of the straight woman. I think one of the things, you know, going back to a comedy like this from the 80s, is you're kind of worried that, is there going to be some stuff that doesn't hold up? you know, mm. that well, in terms of, uh, you know, like, like, Venkman is very kind of flirty with her, and, you know, but he never crosses yeah. a line, you know, he, he 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 does sort of come on a bit strong, shall we say, uh, but her kind of attitude towards him, I think, always makes it feel okay. Yeah, I, I feel like it's kind of a dual-sided coin between Venkman and then Rick Moranis' character, Lewis, where... Both of them have the hots for Sigourney Weaver's character, and both of them just take it, like, a little bit too far in terms of... She's she's represented not so as her own character first, but more so as the love interest. And then, I, I it, like you said, it never feels like it goes beyond a point where it becomes like, oh, yeah, we were so different back in the 80s, and, like, there's no way that would ever fly today. But it does give off just a little bit of a vibe that it like almost danced that close you know it's i think moranis's character is just you know the, the running joke with him is that he's the neighbor across the hall and every time she walks past his place he's always listening for her so he'll jump out and try and talk to her and that's Which just seems weird yeah it's just very keen but he, he obviously yeah. he seems like an innocent little guy mm-hmm. <laughs> um I think the way she reacts to both of them makes me feel better about it. The thing right. with Venkman, of course, is that he's just been a bit inappropriate because he's he goes to her place to investigate on you know as a professional because he's investigating the ghost stuff and he's dropping little one-liners about oh here's the bedroom and she's like oh nothing happened in there that's a shame and it like looks like yeah okay like th- that line would get you in trouble if you actually said that in real life you know oh which, yeah as a uh, professional. Like, she rolls her eyes at it, don't get me wrong, but... Mm -hmm. uh, I I guess the the key here is that throughout it, it's all in good fun. It never feels like any character is really actually put out by any of this. Like, obviously, she immediately, like, rejects him 100%, just tells him, get out of here, I don't want anything to do with you. But it's not done in a mean way. It's not done in a way where she obviously, like, never wants to see him again. She obviously had some level of attraction to him, so... Yeah, it's all in good fun. Yeah, yeah. And you know, and he does go. It's not like he fights that much. He just yeah. he kinda sticks his head in the door to get one last little line in before he goes, but there's, there's mm-hmm. nothing like I say, it never goes that far. Because uh, it was when he started making those little comments I went, Oh, maybe this 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 might, you know, just skirt over a line. Uh Right. But it, it never quite did. Um No. So Yeah, uh then we have Janine played by Annie Potts, who's this the sort of the receptionist of uh, mm-hmm. the Ghostbusters. Uh, I I always, I, I guess it never existed, but I always kind of assumed I just missed the scene where they hired her on. Mm. But she just appears. She just came with the building, as far as I could tell. I mean, I don't think you needed it to be explained. I mean, you, you see yeah. her there and you get that they've hired someone. Like, especially since, oh, yeah. you know, they skip over a lot of things like that where 
obviously we see them looking at the building before they buy it, but you know, there's other things they don't explain. You just sort of you ex- you expect to just get that they've they've taken these steps. Oh uh, yeah, I I don't need it to be explained. I just because it's been so long since I've seen it, I always thought that there was a scene where she got hired on, hmm. and then there just wasn't. I was like, oh okay, never mind. I know there was like 18 minutes of deleted scenes in the extras, uh, which I've, mm. I probably watched way back in like the DVD days, but okay. I, I can't remember if that was one of the scenes that were there, if there was ever anything like that. Uh, I guess the only character left to really mention is Peck, uh, who's like yeah. this, you know, health and safety guy who comes in and causes some problems uh, for, the, for the team. The, the, we'll get to him more as he comes up in the story, but there's this running trend for a while online where everyone kind of was like, nah, he was right. He was right. He was doing his job well, and there's no reason he should have been treated the way he did. I'm going to disagree in that he was, he may have been right, but he was an absolute dick about it. Yes. The whole way through. Yes. He he was technically right about one thing, but he is such an insufferable prick <laughs> about yeah. how he goes about it. Uh, that yeah, I don't feel particularly bad. This is the same guy who went on to play the prick in Die Hard, uh, the yeah. newsman. So, uh, he kind of got typecast a little bit, uh, for a while. I mean, as long as he got paid, take it. Oh sure, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure he was thrilled to be a part of both Ghostbusters and Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks good on the old uh, resume, doesn't it? Um, I do. That's the other thing that I kind of wish that I was around in '84 when this first came out. I want to know, like how it was marketed you know like was this like the tent pole of the season did they put all of their i think it was columbia that distributed this did they yeah. put all of their eggs in that basket and say everyone needs to see ghostbusters this is our big thing of the year or was it kind of like ah, hey, here's a fun comedy film that you can enjoy or not enjoy i mean i don't know for sure i mean i've seen the posters i've seen the trailer uh I, I think it looks very marketable. Like you can slap mm. that logo on a poster, and I'm sure one of the posters is just the logo on the poster. Oh yeah, with uh, this summer or next year or whatever it would have been, um, mm. and probably made people curious. And it helps that Bill Murray certainly was already well known for this coming yeah. out. If not, maybe also Dan Aykroyd. I really, I'd have to go back and like sort of look at the filmographies and Dan Dan Aykroyd. I mean, they were both from SNL or was it SNL? It was whatever one of those comedy shows. Um. Dan Aykroyd was on Blues Brothers before this, and then... Oh, of course, uh, yeah, so he was already a star. Yeah, Blues yeah, Brothers. Yeah, and Bill Murray had Caddyshack, so definitely big comedy hits throughout. Yeah, so so they were both kind of at their 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 height, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Dan Aykroyd was at his height. Bill Murray had a longer height. He was he was actually very successful for a long time. Dan Aykroyd, yeah. you know, uh, he obviously had Ghostbusters 2, and he was There's in a, a lot of things. There's a reason that Dan Aykroyd was pushing so hard for Ghostbusters <laughs> 3. We'll just leave it at that. Then he's got his Crystal Skull vodka. He yeah. made his film that he directed, that which absolutely horrible. I saw that for the first time last year. I don't, I'm don't. i not familiar with that one. Called that? Nothing, Nothing But Trouble. Um, he was really obsessed with people, like playing multiple characters, wearing fat suits, and lots of disgusting eating scenes. It was not pleasant. Oh, God. It doesn't look pleasant. Ugh, all yeah. right. Never mind. Now, even Chevy Chase couldn't save it. <sighs> wow, what a damning indignation that is! <laughs> yeah, just a really, really weird, uh, weird movie. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I. It's funny actually. Like, like, obviously, this movie was part of the childhood, as was the second one. We'll talk about that next time. Um, yep. I, re- you know, I remember like when Harold Ramis passed away. Um, mm. like, probably a good decade ago now, or 
close to, I imagine. Uh, I think so, yeah. Hold on. Yeah. It's been... 2014, yep. Yeah, exactly a decade. I, I nailed it. Uh, there you go. And possibly even close to this time of year. Because, and the reason why I say that is because I remember watching the Oscars that year and uh, when Bill Murray was presenting an award, he, he threw in a little uh, nod to him. And it was mm-hmm. kind of sweet because those two had fallen out like sometime around or after Groundhog Day. They, had, they didn't speak for a long time. I don't know if it was during that movie or something that happened a bit later, but mm-hmm. they went years without talking to each other. Um, and I think they patched things up before his death, but it, it was just kind of a nice like thing. And I think on the list of like actors and people that I just grew up watching in certain movies, like he probably was one of the first to you know. I think mm. after him, it wasn't too long before Bill Paxton went, and that one hit me as well. Like just some right. of these faces that just mean a little bit more because of the movies I grew up watching and. It makes you realize, oh shit, maybe I'm getting kind of old now because a lot yeah. of the people I grew up watching are really up there in age. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to it when we get there, but that's kind of one of my things that I have against um, the newer Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, movies. oh I've got thoughts. It's, it's just the full thing of like, hey everyone, look how old these people you grew up on are. That means you're old too. Yeah, doesn't make me feel good. Nah. <laughs> Uh, just to be clear, Harold Ramis died exactly one week and ten years ago. Damn, okay. February 24th. So, yep. All right. Uh, so, all right, well, I guess we'll say spoilers so we can just talk about the whole the whole movie now, just in, just yep. in case for some reason you're someone who hasn't seen Ghostbusters. <laughs> I suspect 99.99% of you have, but mm-hmm. for, for that one person... I will say, at least in the U.S., it is not available for streaming easily. It's not on one of like the big tentpole streaming services. I had to actually rent this one. So, yeah, get your DVDs circulating. Fuck, it's twenty twenty four. At least have a Blu-ray. Jesus Christ, DVDs definition. Um, I don't like to assume that a Blu-ray has been made for any movie, but I guess with Ghostbusters, yeah, that would make sense. <laughs> it definitely has. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I don't like relying on streaming services anyway. There's always just random movies that aren't on one of them. Mm-hmm. Sometimes even big movies like Ghostbusters, apparently. So yeah, uh, just yeah. Anyway, yes, Ghostbusters. I, I mean, yeah, I guess we go through it. This is uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's, I mean, I can't. Maybe you remember it well enough to do each scene exactly in order, but otherwise, I'm just going to go broad strokes because it bounces um, a little bit at the beginning. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to do every little scene in order, but I think broadly I can remember the gist of the order. Uh, It all starts one afternoon with a meek, quiet librarian. Should I get the, like, ASMR music (laughs) playing in the background? Walking in the basement level of the New York City Library. And then she shits herself as cards start flying out the drawers and she sees a ghost. <laughs> I was actually kind of amazed um, for just like a fraction of a second when the uh, Ghostbusters logo comes up. They play the theme song. Yeah. Like just just for just for like a bar or two. But I was like, wow, I thought they were going to build to that. But no, it's just right there at the beginning. Well, it wasn't iconic yet. It was the first movie. So this, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I, just, yeah, I was shocked that they didn't, because I knew it was in that montage scene. I remember it there. But the yeah. fact they also played it over the opening title, I was it's, like, oh, I mean, yeah, right. It's just a, a couple of bars of the music. There's no singing at the start. Uh, mm-hmm. You hear it in the montage in the middle, and then you hear it again at the ending. And so, you know, rule of threes. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually the thing that got me off guard with the the the, the title and it always does with, when i watch this again is that it, it's split over two lines it says ghost and investors and that's weird that's to me right. because you never see it written like that anymore like it like ever since ghostbusters 2 it's always been a singular line like one big word and it is still technically one word but yeah. in the title screen of this original movie they split it over two lines and that just looks weird to me Whoever whoever was in the editing room didn't get the style guide from marketing. <laughs> they were promptly fired. Yeah. So we're introduced to to Peter Venkman as he's mm-hmm. doing a psychology or a I say psychology a, a, a telekinesis. <laughs> not te- sorry, I, I, not, not telekinesis. Sorry, telepathy. Telepathy. That's the word I was thinking. But for. yeah, they're they're called parapsychologists, which is to say psychology, but like not approved uh-huh uh and the joke here of course is that he's got two students that have volunteered to take this test where he's doing little electric shocks when they get something wrong he's showing them cards mm-hmm. or to be more precise he's not showing them the cards and they're guessing the shape that's on the cards yep and he keeps shocking the guy but because he thinks the girl's pretty he keeps just telling her she's right and mm-hmm. that's that's the joke of the scene which to be fair sets up that he's a bit of a I don't know if playboy is the right word, but he's certainly a bit of a flirter. A womanizer. Yeah. Um, I do, I love in this scene the fact that it's, again, rule of threes, and on the third time, the guy actually gets it right. He does, yeah. Murray isn't even paying attention. He's just like, nope, you suck. <laughs> I love as well, if you're paying attention to it, obviously because he's getting them wrong, he always flips the card to show that he's wrong, but when she's mm-hmm. doing it, he doesn't flip the card, and notably when he gets it right, Oh, sorry. The car just goes down. He doesn't. You don't get yep. to see it. Uh, it's very good. I I always just I love that when Dan Aykroyd comes in, when Stance comes in, mm-hmm. and he says, "Hey, we need to talk." Somehow to the library, and he doesn't want to talk to him. He's like, "No, I'm talking to a pretty girl. Like this, this is going well. I'm 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 colluding with a student." And <laughs> there's a moment here where he jumps and slaps Dan Aykroyd on the head, and I'm like. How does she not hear that? He just slapped the man on the top of his head. I mean, of course she heard it. She just knows better to mind her own business. She can get that $5. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the thing. The guy gets a man and says, you can keep your $5. It storms out. And I'm like, you agreed to do like 75 shock tests for $5? That was 84 money. And today's money, that's like $15. <laughs> that still seems too low. <laughs> Especially since Bill Murray says, hey, we're paying you for your time, aren't we? Five dollars for like what two hours of this bullshit? <laughs> no <Yeah>. way! Come <laughs> on now. Well, he has to start getting them right. There you go. <laughs> oh dear! Actually, I get a little disgusted in this scene because the guy like he, he spits out his chewing gum by accident when he gets shocked, and he puts it mm. back in, and I'm like, that's gross. It's five second rule. He's fine. Oh. I d- that's five second rules a bunch of nonsense. five second rule in this disused closet in the back of the university clearly fine oh dear i think the the zingers will really start coming when they go to the library yeah because we oh, are yeah. i already mentioned of course the are you menstruating line um but everything here but them bantering with each other uh go, going down into the basement and just the, the looks they're giving each other and I think the the key thing, the the key narrative of this scene on its own is, and this is what's so great about the opening of this movie, is that mm-hmm. Bill Murray goes into this scene a non-believer. He is clearly a skeptic and doesn't believe that he's going to see a ghost. 
Yeah, the, the entire thing that he's in this job for is that it essentially is a non-job because yes. he works for the university along with these guys. They get paid to run like quote-unquote studies, which as we've seen, Bill Murray, he just like randomly shocks students and hits on the pretty ones. He's able to do that and get paid. That's the whole reason he's doing any of this. Absolutely. He, he's he's basically Saul Goodman. Right, that's that's yeah. <laughs> he saw Goodman with a just a Bill Murray charm kind of yeah, you know, slapped no, on top accurate. of him. But he he like he, you know Egon asked him to get give a get a sample at one point here, and mm-hmm. I love watching the physical acting from Bill Murray here as he's just he's just trying to scoop up this goo, this ectoplasm, without touching it. But then he gets some of it on his fingers, so he just starts like wiping it on the books. And he gets some on his shoe, so he starts wiping the book with his shoe. Yeah, even even the first flick he does, you can tell he meant to like totally flick it away, but a tiny bit gets onto like his forehead, and he fully reacts to that. He's like, ah, <laughs> oh, god, ah, oh, this, ah, oh, Jesus. And it it does make you wonder, like, how much of like obviously it starts intentional, but something mm-hmm. like that could he have planned for that? Was he expecting? I don't think so. Yeah, it, it seems like I'd... a genuine moment. Yeah, I feel like so much of this is just improv. I'd love to see what the actual shooting script said, because I have to imagine every, like, four lines is just parentheses, Bill does something funny. (laughs) Yeah, and I think there's a lesson here, though, when we get to the 2016 movie, because I think that movie has a lot of ad-lib in it, but it's Hmm. you can tell it's a lot of ad-lib in a really negative way, and I think there's a, a charm here to it never slows anything down, it's always these quick zingers. Um, it's always advancing things, and it feels tight in the way it's edited. Whereas the 2016 movie, from what I remember, has a lot of like, oh, we're just going to keep dancing for another yeah. minute for no reason. So I, I think that's also just kind of like a sign of the times, where these 80s movies they had a lot of like those quick zinger lines. That was kind of just the humor of the time. Mm. Whereas I feel like as you get further and further out and you start getting like internet humor, it starts delving into like absurdism and cringe humor. And it's just how long can we just hold on a shot? Yeah. So, so. not looking forward to that one, too, if I'm honest. <laughs> but yeah. we'll... You know what? I'll, let's put an embargo on the 2016 one for two weeks. No talking <laughs> about that anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, one of my favorite little moments here because they see the, the books all stacked up and Bill Murray cracks a little joke he's like yeah yeah no one else could have done that but they're just walking around this corner and a bookcase behind them just falls down and it's like Venkman's suddenly starting to think maybe there's actually something going on here he's like have you ever seen anything like that Ray and he's like Mm-mm-mm. and then Egon's like Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> it's like alright cool moving on uh, and thus starts a, a joke that's paid off in the finale where Venkman sends Ray out to talk to the ghost. This happens again in the very final big thing that happens at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he, he... Well, Ray goes in first because they see the ghost just standing there and he comes out and he's like, hey, you uh, you come here often? Like he tries to like talk to the ghost as he would oh, any other Venkman, woman. Oh, that's you mean. Venkman goes out and tries... He, he tries yeah. to chat her up, yeah. You said Ray. Yeah. Uh, Oh, my bad, yeah, Venkman does that. And then when it's not working, he comes back and Ray's like, all right, I have an idea. <laughs> and his idea is to just sneak up behind her and he yells, get her. And then the ghost goes scary and they run away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's that. that. I mean, that's the scene. But it, yeah. it's... I think it sets up the personalities of the three characters very well, right? Peter's mm-hmm. the sleazy skeptic, right? Who's out for yep. himself. 
Ray's this genuine believer who's fascinated, and Egon's like the uber nerd who's got the tech and is very deadpan. Yeah, I was going to say, this scene, and pretty much any scene that Egon's in, he's kind of there just to exposit how the tech works, but he's he does it in such, like, again, the driest humor possible. Like, he does it in a funny way, but if you try describing why it's funny, it doesn't sound like it. Yeah, there's a know? moment when they first meet him, right? Uh, right after... Uh, Peter does the whole books thing when he's got this, the stethoscope on the table mm-hmm. uh, where he's like, you know, I, I'm the one that has to stop you from all your crazy ideas. Is that one time you wanted to drill a hole in your head? And Egon just dryly turns and says, and that would have worked if you hadn't stopped me. Yeah. Uh, but it's purely in the delivery that that line yeah. works. Yeah. Like me saying that is not funny at all, but the way he says it, he, like it's just Harold Ramis just being himself or yeah. being Egon, I guess. That just makes it work. It's just perfect mm-hmm. the way it's delivered. I think it's right after this scene, as they're kind of like reconvening in a park, uh, talking about what their next steps are. He, he, we have Venkman turning to Egon after he's like, "All right, I'm convinced this is happening," and he like offers him a candy bar or something, and he says, <laughs> "Egon, I'm going to take back some of the things I said about you." And he like Egon's just so happy to have this candy bar. I love that sequence. Yeah, I think he says, "You've earned it." yeah <laughs> like, that's what it is do you just feed him candy bars every time he like, yeah. he pulls something off he's just like a science room pet sort of thing but i mean Venkman's already starting to think okay well how can we use this to like, we're going to get prizes we're going to make money we're going to do this thing uh mm-hmm. and then the university when they get back there it turns out that they're they're they've all been fired they're like they're not going to fund the research projects anymore because they're a bunch of quacks as far as they're concerned um yep. And they have to go and, you know, so it's like, well, how are we going to get money? How are we going to fund this new enterprise that we want to try and explore? Uh, cut to Ray being forced. That's uh, stance for the record, just in case I'm mm-hmm. jumping between names here. Uh, Ray has been talked into taking out a mortgage on his house that his parents left him. A third mortgage it, at that. A third mortgage. And that's a, such a good line delivery. It's just like, oh, my parents bought me that house. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. Everyone has a third mortgage nowadays. Yes, uh, and then he comes back with like, and you didn't even negotiate with the guy; you just took whatever rate he gave us. Yeah, Egon's quiet, except he chimes in at one point and says, uh, "The interest on the first three years alone amounts to ninety-five thousand dollars." <laughs> and again, uh, it's a good—it's a good thing their business works out. That's nineteen eighty-four money as well, mate. <laughs> True. That's a million now. Yeah, not actually, but. Yeah, and you know, it goes through things quite quickly here. We see the, the fire station that they're going to get. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and there's kind of a running gag here as well, actually, where Ray keeps wanting things like he's a kid. Because, you know, yeah. Venkman and Egon are like, oh, this place is horrible. It's a death trap. You know, Egon lists like 10 things that are wrong with it. But then Ray comes down the pole and goes, this pole's great. We'll take it. <laughs> it yeah, he's. I, I feel like this scene does more to give Ray a character, even than the earlier ones, where... It just shows that he's the guy who has, like, the childlike wonder. He's the guy who yeah. goes surreal, and he's just ecstatic over the idea of that. He does It's like, yeah, the scientific implications, blah, blah, blah. But he's like, go surreal, man. That's awesome. Oh, he's super excited. And I love how they've already got terminology as if they've been doing this for years. Like, even in the library mm-hmm. scene, uh, or when he's explaining it to Venkman, he's like, oh... Uh, a class four torso vapor, full motion, yeah. or something. You know, he, he says something like that, and it's, but it's all these words strung together. It sounds really scientific and official. And I'm like, all you're describing is a freaking ghost. 
that's it. That's a class four event. Uh, to be fair, I wonder if there was like some level of behind the scenes how they chose the terminology because obviously as we go through the movie the librarian looking ghost is a hell of a lot different than like slimer sure like, yes they are very different types of ghosts so i wonder if there is some consistent terminology if you really looked at the script oh for sure uh so i mean it's probably around here uh, we cut to dana for the first time yeah i think it's about Round here because they're mm-hmm. getting set up and we cut to um, I think she's yeah she's watching like their ad right. She comes in and... yeah she she gets in off the street. She got groceries and then she meets up with Lewis out in the hall, who basically tells her like, oh yeah, you left your TV on. I was gonna show, I was gonna go in and fix it, but you locked the door, so I just turned mine up real loud anyway. Also, and he I... just does this whole long bambling thing. I love that he invites her in for a glass of mineral water. Like, that's such a weird thing to say, come in for that. <laughs> like, come into my home for water. Like, I get offering water when they're already at your place, but come in for oh, yeah. a mineral water. I'm pretty sure she I... has water. She lives across the hall. Oh, but not mineral water. That's that's the, what you really need in order to stay hydrated. I also really love this running joke they've got going on where every time he leaves his apartment, he gets locked out. I love that. I love that he has this thing. And it's... He always talks about the fact that he's an accountant and like you should you know you, you know you do your own taxes, but you really shouldn't do that. But you should come to my party. But <laughs> I love there's a bit later on during the party where some people arrive at his door and he, he welcomes them in and he just starts announcing all of their tax information. He's like yeah. he, he he's got this job and she's got this deferred loan from years ago and they've got fifteen thousand dollars left on their house. And I'm like, why are you telling all these strangers? Because <laughs> that's literally all he knows about them. <laughs> Well, yeah, there's a, there's a line about how this is all clients at the party because then he can rate it off in his taxes as a yeah. as a like a work thing. <laughs> Someone asks, like, "Oh, hey, do you have any Tylenol?" He's like, "No, I got a the generic <laughs> brand because I can get six hundred compared to three hundred for the same price. That's good business." <laughs> Such a fun character. Yeah, and I feel like so much of this is just again, it's Rick Moranis just delivering the lines in such a way that he's just so endearing as this goofy little character. Yeah, pretty it, much. It, I mean, I it just strikes me as him. I'm sure he's not actually this geeky in real life, but it's just how I see him all the time. Oh, sure. Uh, but yeah, he invites Dana to his party that he's having on whatever mm-hmm. night, and she's like, I'll try and stop by, kind of thing. Uh, but she sees the ad for Ghostbusters on the TV, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, at this point, they're not really proven yet or anything. And then she goes into the, the kitchen to put her away her groceries, and this is one of these like vivid memories from the movie that always stick out to me is this visual of the eggs like sort of like cracking okay. out of the, the 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 box and uh just mm-hmm. cooking on the counter and i just i'm imagining like the how they did this where they had like a a counter that was basically just like a a heating plate and they, like they were mm. probably like just cooking the eggs literally on the counter. I just I, I'm imagining the logistics of actually pulling this scene off because it's all practical. It's all there in camera. Yeah, I mean it's definitely a practical effect. I I don't know about whether the counter was actually like a stovetop or whatever. I guess it's possible. I more so imagine that they just like pressurize the eggs to get them to explode out. But yeah, but then they start cooking saying, on the counter. Yeah, that's the part. Like I'm not sure how that would work. Maybe it's not even eggs at that point. Maybe they change it out for something else. But beats me uh yeah uh, either way it's uh it's it's a fun moment and then of mm-hmm. course she opens her fridge and sees the 
the portal to another dimension. Yeah. <laughs> and the big dog demon. And then it's... Does it say Azul or Gozar? I can't it, does, it does say Azul. Azul it says, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I do, I do absolutely love, though, with the uh, egg sequence, is that you don't notice it until you're re-watching the movie. Just how many little subtle ads there are for Stay Puffed marshmallow brand throughout ah, yeah, this movie. Yeah, yeah. Like every once in a while it'll just be like off to the side. It'll just get it in your head. So that it's there whenever you need something to pop into your head at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's very good. It's very good. Uh especially since it is a fake thing that the movie made up where I grew up just mm. assuming this was something the US had. I assumed this was no. a real thing. <laughs> no, I'd love to have that. Are you kidding me? That'd be fantastic, but nope. Yeah. Uh so she goes to the Ghostbusters headquarters and Ray's still working on the car. Um, that... Apparently it's been like two days since this happened. She's just been kind of avoiding her apartment since then. I guess. She's freaked out. She's not willing to accept it's a real thing. But I have to work up a bit of courage to actually go and explain that this happened. Because she's going to sound yeah. crazy. Uh, and this is actually where we first get our first proper meeting with Janine, I think, as well. Because uh, mm. we see Venkman come in and she sort of has some quick back and forth with him. Um, yeah, and he, he kind of insults her and then apologizes and says he'll be in his office but he keeps talking like they've got a big business even though they've not had a single customer yet uh, but Dana comes in and Venkman I love like this again this is one of these just little moments that's just vivid in my memory is Bill Murray leaping over the little fence the little gate yeah. to get out front to like welcome her and you know start asking her questions about what's going on hmm Ah, uh, dear. But anyway, so they all sit around, hear a story, talk about some possibilities, whatever, and Venkman's like, I'll go back to her place and check her out. I mean, I'll go back to her place and check out her apartment. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so... And immediately the eye rolls, just like, okay, we know how this is going. Yeah. Alex, one of the lines she has when he's going around, I mean, I compared him to Saul Goodman, but she compares him to a, like a, a game show host, which I guess... Yeah. I, I guess he, I could see that been- comparison. Yeah, she specifically says, like, you don't seem like a scientist. And he's like, oh, well, I mean, I am a doctor. He's like, no, you seem a lot more like a game show host. And I'm, as soon as she makes that comparison, I'm like, I feel like that applies to almost every Bill Murray role. There are very few that don't fit that level of charismatic. Well, to be fair, there's a joke in the second movie where he, like, he's literally a TV show host at the start of the movie. Yeah, you know, before he's yeah. pulled back into the Ghostbusters stuff. So they actually kind of, I guess that's that was the intention there is they actually paid that off uh, with where yeah. he is at the start of the next one. Um, but yeah, mostly this is the scene where he tries to flirt. Uh, he comes on strong. She shoves him out the 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 apartment. I don't have mm-hmm. too much to say here. Um, now the only thing is that she everything that she saw before is not there anymore. So like the eggs are. I mean they were broken, but they're not cooking anymore. They're not exploding. And then inside the fridge is just a fridge. So yeah. at that point she he he kind of like teases her a little bit. And she takes that poorly. She's just like, no, because now you think I'm crazy, but I'm not crazy. Like, that definitely did happen. Yeah. Uh, he mocks her for her junk food <laughs> in her fridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, little of your fridge, David. I saw a lot of cans of Coke in there. Look, man, this isn't about me. <laughs> hey, it's a Sony movie. Sony love to do product placement, so I, 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 I assume this was very much an intentional thing. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Once we hit 2016, I'm gonna start looking up the product placement before it comes out, just so I can have it ready for the thumbnails. <laughs> I think you've got like a seven out of ten chance that Coca Cola is going to be in there. We'll see. I'll check it out. If so, I've already got prepped. <laughs> oh dear. 
But this actually leads us to the first actual call. Uh, mm-hmm. And possibly the most famous line in the movie is we've got one. Like, like I think I could argue that that's kind of the... Oh, well, I, I suppose who you're going to call is actually the most famous line, but that's not in the movie, technically. That's in the song. Yeah. I I get what you're saying. I feel like there are so many memorable one-liners from this, though, that saying that any one of them is the most oh, famous. Actually, like, hold, on, hold on. Yeah. Who you're going to call, I think, is in the TV ad, so technically it is also in the movie. But people don't say it because it was in the TV yeah. ad in the movie. They say it because it was in the song. Anyway. Yeah. But I would I would argue that, obviously, we'll get to it in just a minute, but I think like, the, I think it was He Slimed Me or I Got Slimed or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that that, that one is up there in contention. That or the uh, line about the god and uh, towards the end. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. I think all of these are super memorable, even more so than that. I, it's just, I don't know. It's just it's, it's, the, it's the moment. Like, I remember watching it as a kid because that's the moment you realize, oh, they're Ghostbusters now. Like, everything up until now has been, like, set Oh, yeah, up. no. It's definitely a great shift point yeah. in the movie because they, they're literally having Chinese food that they specifically say is the last of their cash. Like, they have not had any business this is it the business is officially like done and then that call comes in and it's such a pivot in where they are as characters because now they're like we did it we got one and i loved um the way annie potts plays this scene because she's like yeah it's ghostbusters well really what (laughs) you do (laughs) like she's just so surprised because she's not expecting it she's probably thinking i'll have this job for a few few weeks until this place shuts down Mm because it's not going to last um but then i think think the second line on the call is even the better one where she's like yes this is ghostbusters yeah we're real (laughs) yeah like she even has to clarify that point (laughs) yeah but then she rings the alarm and just screams we got one um Mm -hmm. cute you know, I, I, my favorite part of this is that Bill Murray like brings his like box of Chinese food down the the, the pole with him. Yeah, all three of them have like their own fun way of going down the pole. Ray is like super eager; he slides down it. He's living out his fantasy. Uh, Bill Murray's just like, yeah, all right, whatever, and he brings his Chinese down. And then Egon is like super scared of going down the pole, and you can see the fear in his eyes as he slowly descends. I never went down a fireman's pole. I imagine I'd probably be a little nervous the first time, but once you've done it a couple times, you'd just be. Zooming down it. I mean, I've never spent any time on a pole. So after that, they hop <laughs> in the uh, the the Ecto One. We finally get that. Yeah, we get the big out. reveal. We get the yep. you know here's the license plate. It comes you know darting around the the entrance and around down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, great. You know, it's got it's got a really distinct sounding alarm. What you think? So you, you can hear it as well as see it. You know? Here, here's a question for you. Maybe this is a different uh, thing across the pond. If mm-hmm. you heard this alarm and you saw the lights blaring, do you think you should move out of the way? Like, it's not an actual emergency vehicle. It has no... It's a private entity. Do you, you know, think you should be moved out of the way? What's so funny that you say this is I was thinking about this as the scene was playing out, actually. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about how... Not so much would you move out of the way, because I think vehicles wouldn't... They wouldn't necessarily notice what the vehicle is. They'd just see the siren, hear the siren, and move. Yeah. And then by the time it's went past, they'd be like, wait a minute, that wasn't something I'm used to seeing. Um, mm. The question I was thinking in my head was, is this technically illegal to like put your own right. siren up and pretend you're an emergency vehicle? And 
part of me thought if if I was writing this movie today, and I'm not saying I could do better, but the one thing that I might put in is when they're with the mayor, it would be like, hey, technically we're breaking the law every time we ride our car. Can you make our like siren official <laughs> so that people <laughs> have to actually uh, yeah, adhere to it? <laughs> I, I don't know what the laws are. I do know that there is a charge of impersonating an officer. Mm. So I think having flashing red and blue lights and a siren might just be enough to cross over of people reasonably assume that you are an officer and therefore you could get arrested on that. Oh, I don't but, know. I, they've got a, a distinct color scheme. They've got their own logo. <laughs> I, like <laughs> That's fine, but the red and blue lights specifically. If they change it to like red and green lights, no problem. What's but, the red lights? I thought it was like blue lights yeah, on top of the actual yeah, one. it was red and blue. I'm, I'm almost certain there was, but I have no way of checking right now. So I can't remember any red, but I mean, I'll take your word for it. That's fine. Tell us in the comments. What were the lights on the Ecto One? No, okay. no watching the movie. Just do it by memory. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, what one of the uh, so so they arrive at this hotel, which is where they, they got the call from, and um, mm. they they come out into the into the foyer, and there's a shot where the three of them are sort of walking in a line in costume for the first time. So you're yeah. getting to see all these goods and all the rest of it. This is actually a scene I remember in the commentary track, and I've not listened to this commentary track again since like the early DVD days, but mm. one of the things that I remember them pointing out in this this scene is that back in the day when this was pan and scanned for TV before we had just proper widescreen versions at home, is the Egon would always be cut out of this shot because <laughs> he was at the side. Uh, so it's actually a really good movie to show why widescreen and like the original aspect ratio is important okay. because there's these shots where three or four of them are lined up in a row so you can see them all properly framed in the widescreen but mm-hmm. you cut it to pan and scan and all of a sudden you've got two and a half Ghostbusters <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine them walking into the room is fine but then the hotel clerk comes over on the opposite side of Egon and all of a sudden the camera just has to yeet right over to that yeah well the conversation is yeah yeah no, uh, I think I love what I love most about this entire hotel section is the fake confidence of yeah we've done this a million times before yeah there's nothing to worry about we're professionals here and in the moment they get in the elevator and they have some time alone Ray's like you know we've never actually tested out the proton packs and they one of my favorite little dry humor bits is uh, Egon saying I blame myself and Venkman saying yeah so do I <laughs> Yeah, I love that. I love the body language uh, of of Egon turning on Ray's pack and then mm. just backing up out of the corner like he's just scared for his life because this thing might be radioactive. I think they specifically, like before this point, say unlicensed nuclear accelerators yes. on their back. Yes. So it's like, yeah, no, they're all going to die. <laughs> Actually, when they get out of the elevator uh, and... We sort of skipped over the guy who's scared to get into the elevator with them. That's a funny little bit, too. Yeah. Uh, we'll be here all day, though, if we point out every single little bit. But when they get out of the elevator and they like they accidentally like fire at the, the maid who's like you know going down mm-hmm. the hall with all of her, her laundry stuff, there's a little gag here that I caught for the first time on this viewing that I really thought was funny, mainly just because I'd never noticed it before. But okay. after they do the whole thing where they fire their proton packs uh, and, it, you know, it's... We see this throughout the movie that whenever it's hit like a wall or something, there's some like fire and stuff. But they turn mm. off the packs and the, the, she's hiding behind her little trolley and they're like, sorry. And, you know, the, the scene continues and they talk to each other for a little bit. I never noticed until this viewing that in the background, you can yeah. see her try to put out one of the little fires with her little like bottle of like cleaning fluid. She's sort of yeah. squishing the water at it. 
and that, I just thought that was really funny in the background. <laughs> yeah, I noticed that too. That was I, I. I love when background characters have a little bit of fun, like not enough to overpower the scene, but just a little Easter egg of like, yeah, look, they're doing something there. Oh yeah, I mean, it only took twenty five viewings to actually notice this, yeah, <laughs> or whatever it has been in my life. But uh, I really appreciate that. I, hmm. yeah, so. So at this point, they all split up. They start looking for wherever the ghost is. And I think it's Ray who first comes across Slimer eating like a dessert tray that's yeah. left out in the hall. Yeah, I, I really like that when he tries to fire at Slimer. And there's a bit of, you know, a pausing and build up before he does it. But uh, Slimer runs away and he, he goes through the wall, of course. And there's sort of like a splat left on the wall where he's went through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like that the... the I don't know if it's this or when he's, it's when he's with Venkman. No, it must be here. Uh, the trolley moves with them, and you can see the 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 carpet crinkling as the trolley's yeah. moving. Um, I, mm-hmm. I thought that was a fun little detail. Yeah, absolutely. So then, the as Slimer goes through the wall, Venkman's... Oh, well, we do a little bit with Egon, just poking at a random guy down the hall. And then Venkman comes out to uh, one of the openings and sees Slimer there. He gets on the walkie-talkie with uh ray is like i've got him he's here and ray tells him don't move don't antagonize he can't hurt you but then slimer starts bolting at him and that's where we get the infamous he slimed me line yeah to which ray responds that's great actual physical contact and then he got over the comms is like save me some i want some of that slime yeah no problem so at that point slimer's made his way down into the ballroom and that's where the final standoff's going to be. That's where most of the property damage is uh, <laughs> located, because they destroy some chandeliers, several tables, lots of dishes. I love how it starts out innocently, like they don't have full control over the proton pack, so the beam is just kind of going everywhere. This is also, I believe this is the point where Egon points out, don't cross the streams. Yes, yes. Like, if that, if, if that ever happens, everything dies, and everything's dead forever. So, um... At that point, it starts out with them not being able to control the proton packs, but then as they come up with more and more plans, it's just willing destruction. Like, they're just like, we need a clear space to get down the trap, and they just start shoving tables, flipping them out of the way. (laughs) And we have Vankman at one point trying to do, like, the tablecloth trick, and it totally doesn't work, but he still calls it a win. This is, uh... I feel like this is almost, like, the idea that firefighters, when they're, like, going into a building to save people from a fire. Obviously, they have full carte blanche to just start throwing things around because it's all getting destroyed anyway. Right. I feel like this is the same attitude that they've given to the Ghostbusters here, except, no, no, this is still meant to be a functioning ballroom and hotel after you leave, and you've wrecked half of it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what? who was really causing more damage there at that point, Slimer or them? Yeah. I, I, that's a fair fair point. I. Yeah, I think part part of this is kind of like the recklessness of what this business is. This business to like mm. catch ghosts, like it's not like that much thought went into it. They just kind of rushed into it head first because yeah, oh, we can, and it's special because no one's done it before. <laughs> yeah, we are cornering the market. Nobody else knows what we know here. Yeah, and of course, the guy doesn't want to pay the uh, the bill, mm. and Vikman's like, I mean- oh, "We'll just put it back." Yeah, even before that, though, the whole capturing of Slimer, I could feel the marketing executives being like, oh, there was, we're going to get so many toy sales on proton packs and this trap <laughs> thing. Oh, my God. Yeah, I'd, I, I would love to know the sequence of like events there where 
was it really that thought of early on or was it more once like the marketing people at sony saw the movie saw the rough cut and went oh wait a minute like there's a lot of things in here we can we can make money out of yeah because because i think the cartoon came around the time as ghostbusters 2 so i i I want to say that maybe the impact and legacy of ghostbusters over that five year period maybe Mm. like made them realize oh shit we can make this like a like a full thing that can appeal to kids and sell a bunch of shit. I bet yeah. you Ghostbusters 2 in the cartoon has way more actual like merch and toys than the first movie oh, yeah. probably did. Absolutely. I'm looking up right now Ghostbusters toys and all I'm finding are the cartoon like variants. I'm mm. not seeing anything that was based off the movie directly. So yeah, that makes yeah. that makes some sense to me. Um Obviously, it's the sort of thing where pop culture's changed over the decades to the point now where lots of nerds buy replicas of things. And, you oh, know, yeah. So there's a market for super realistic-looking proton packs and ghost traps and yeah, whatever I, else. I, I never actually met them, but my local comic shop, they apparently they're host to our local chapter of Ghostbusters, like, reenactors or, like, people who basically have the full proton packs and suits and all that. <laughs> So I've never actually seen them, but I know they're around. Yeah, so uh, th- this kicks us out in the montage, though, uh, yep. where they're they're doing well, like they're getting interviewed on TV, there's news reports about the Ghostbusters, and they're apparently solving ghost problems all over the place. They actually get, like, real celebrities to do it. Like, you get uh, Larry King yeah, and yeah. Casey Kasem talking about them. And some of um, the magazines and, like, newspapers we see are, are real things. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure those would be as hard to like get the licensing to say, "Hey, can we just make like a fake New York oh, sure, Times yeah. headline or something like that?" I feel like that'd be easy enough. But the celebrities, I was more impressed by. And then this entire time, Dana is like listening to the radio, watching the TV, and seeing their business grow exponentially. Yeah, she's sort of seeing, "Hey, either they're legit or they're very good at convincing people they're legit." Like mm-hmm. one, one of those two things is happening. <laughs> Either way, good for them. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh, which, what does that lead us to right after the montage? I'm trying to so remember. So I think after the montage is where uh, Venkman meets back up with Dana outside the concert hall. Yeah, because she's a violinist, we've, we've, yep. we find out over, over the course. And the guy she's with, actually, it was bugging me what I know him from, because he is an actor. I'm sure he's played a villain in something else. I would hope he's an actor, otherwise he's going to be very... Uh shocked that he showed up here very that is timothy carhart is his name ah beverly hills cop 3 that's what i know his face from he's the main right. villain in beverly hills cop 3 there you go he he was also in the hunt for red october and thelma and louise so he's, he's done other things but oh yeah i think that's what i know his face from mainly though uh but yeah uh, yeah the visual that sticks out to me here is the way the scene ends where there's like a like a skater like a figure skater spinning in the mm. background and bill murray starts spinning as well to kind of like yeah, show him how happy he is that he's actually got a date with Dana because he's 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 managed to talk to her. He, he's he's given her a little bit of info, like oh yeah, we researched the the name of the thing, you know. Yeah. So this is, I mean, ignoring the earlier Dana scene where she first gets like the vision through her fridge, this is the first scene that actually I feel like is to the end game of the movie, where it's saying, okay, there was Zool. That word you heard before relates to. This thing called Gozer, who was a demigod way back in the day. It's something with Sumerians, and that's like all the information he has. Yeah. But it's the first sequence that's like towards that end goal. 
Well, I mean, I, I would still say the first one, but Dana is because it's like the you know the, the first yeah. uttering of the name is kind of the start of the the. the but I mean, the Dana's whole Dana's whole plot is to the end game of the movie. This is the first time that I feel the Ghostbusters themselves are like in they're explaining to the audience here's what you have to look forward to here's how we're setting up this big threat yeah yeah uh and that that stuff's good like it's actually the sort of thing where it's been kind of expanded upon and all you really get in this movie is a few little tidbits that kind of poke at a larger mythology but it's Mm -hmm. something that the video game expanded upon and uh okay. even after life kind of brought up a little bit but the idea of the architect of her building is this guy evil shandar or whatever his name is mm-hmm. uh yeah who is like this you know this devil worshiping architect who wanted to bring about judgment day and had a call and he built the building to be this conduit for like demonic energy leading to parallel dimensions but before we get all of that explanation in the movie I, there's a shot where they specifically like show the rooftop of the building mm. and it's two you know these two demonic looking dog creatures and then what is very clearly like a sacrificial altar on the top of it <laughs> and i all i all i literally said at that point was like yeah you know every good apartment building has a sacrificial altar on their roof but that be, nobody's ever questioned but to be fair by the time we get to the scene in the, the jail cell later when egon's explaining it it's like, no, this actually makes sense. The guy built this place to have all this stuff because he was obsessed with it. I'm not saying it doesn't make sense because it does. It fully explains it. My question is why in like the hundred years since it's been built, did nobody ever think to tear down the sacrificial altar? <laughs> like clearly somebody has been up on the roof in that meantime. They could have been like, that's weird. That's That stands out a bit in the New York skyline. Because it would, I don't know, cost too much money to remove a big stone altar like that. I mean, you're probably right. That makes probably. sense. No one ever comes up here. It's fine. They'll just leave it. In that case, the only thing that I think is truly missing is some graffiti. There's no way that that's managed to go graffiti-free for that long. I mean, it is a private apartment building. I guess maybe you could argue there should be some kids or teenagers who live in the building that might come up and do that. Yeah. Okay. I could, I could see it. Uh, so yeah, the date's all set, and you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll just skip to Dana's next scene here because uh we see her come back to her place and she this is so the party's going on uh at the, at the neighbors right at lewis's mm-hmm. place and she's like tiptoeing past so even though he's got music playing and he's got like a you know an apartment full of people talking and socializing she's tiptoeing yeah. outside the door like a cartoon character almost he still comes out like dana Oh, hey, Dana, coming over to the party? And she's like, ah, no, I've actually got a date. And he's like, you had a date for the night that I had a party? All right, we'll bring him along, too. I I love the the, the pause, though, because he's clearly hurt she has a date at all. And then Mm. he kind of like, but but my party was tonight. You're you're seeing another man on the night I invited you to to my party? What? But again, I just love his earnestness that he immediately flips it around being like, all right, yeah, he can come, too. Come on. Like he's it's, like, no, actually, we're not going to go to your party, Lewis. It's almost a shame that we don't get like a scene of Bill Murray at the party having to interact with them. I know he interacts with them briefly. There's like a, the, the, earlier on when he left her place, because mm-hmm. he walks past, like because Tully's heard her door close and then some footsteps, he comes out and sees Bill Murray and he's like, oh, it's, yeah. it's not her. 
and then tries to go back in and locks himself out again. <laughs> but they don't really exchange any lines or anything, you know, so you don't really get, like, Bill Murray having to, like, sarcastically put up with this mm-hmm. accountant character, which yep. would have been fun. So at that point, Dana makes it back into her apartment, and I think this is about where she gets pulled in for yep. Zool. It's because uh, because we've seen the uh, the statues sort of like fall apart and come to life on the mm-hmm. roof already, and she call- our mother calls her on the phone. She's like, "I've got a date. It's with a Ghostbuster. I'll let you know." <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, then the door opens and it's like this bright white light and the the dog demons there. Uh. And then, like, hands start bursting out of the chair and start, like, gripping her down, and then the whole chair just slides into the light. Yep, yep. Uh, it's a very well-done practical effects scene. Yeah, uh, and then that kind of extends as well, because, uh, it's you know, again, there's a couple of scenes with Ghostbusters or whatever, but because we'll go back and talk about Winston joining the team and all that. Yeah. Um, but, like, the Demi-Dog, because there's two of them, of course, right? The other one it turns out, is at the party. It's in the, the bedroom where all the coats are going because we get that famous yeah. shot of the of him throwing the coats in the bed and it just hits the dog in the, the head. Mm-hmm. But uh, the dog bursts out at the party, um, which apparently Tully was about to head it off with this blonde, this this uh, bimbo character who was going to yeah. leave. And he's like, no, what if we dance? Maybe other people will join in. And she's like, okay. And yeah. I, I, again, it's just something about his earnestness, you know? It's something like, he, he, sh- he has absolutely no shame and no recognizability of, like, where he is on the social ladder. And because mm. of that, people are like, I'm all right with this guy. He's pretty cool. But the dog comes bursting out of the, the bedroom, like, sort of bursts through the wall, effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone freaks out. And it specifically targets him. Like, it starts chasing him. It, ch- you know, jumps out into the hall makes more bashes and this is where the effects like this sort of depending on the shot they'll either be a practical or they'll be like a stop motion style effect yeah like a rotoscope slash stop motion thing going on yeah. where it's still a new york street and it's still like a live shot but they have superimposed this clay figure over top of it and it does date it quite a bit like you you can tell significantly that it's not there in the shot but it doesn't look bad it's just very obviously superimposed yeah, but it, it it it's fun. It's got a, a charm to it, and mm-hmm. uh, he runs into Central Park, which I was actually thinking, oh, does she live right across from Central Park? That seems like it must be a, a nice building then, you know, it's yeah. expensive. Um, admittedly, I don't know if her window looks out that direction. I wonder if the, the apartments that face the other direction, if they're inherently much, much cheaper because they're not looking at Central Park. I'm going to say ground floors probably but as soon as you get up to a certain height and you're able to see the whole new york skyline it's going to be expensive regardless yeah i suppose um but they actually mentioned this later but they, they mentioned uh that they're building central park west and i'm like oh yeah they're actually talking about the fact that it's right next to central park mm-hmm. uh so yeah there's he he gets nabbed by the beast when he's like up against this window. there's like a restaurant and he's sort of like banging on the window begging for help and no one cares no one pays attention to him it's it's wonderful physical comedy because as we're outside with him, there's like this suspenseful music and you hear the roars of the dog or whatever. But every time it's inside the restaurant, it's just peaceful violin music and no one can even hear anything he's saying. Yeah, it's just a good visual more, more mm-hmm. than anything else. Uh, so that sets up that they've both been taken. Just before we go on any further on the main plot, though, we should probably go back because Winston was introduced during this whole... Winston and Peck, yeah. Yeah. 
so Winston basically just calls up after the montage because he's like ready for a job. Uh, and he comes in. As soon as Venkman walks in halfway through the interview, he just sort of says, you're hired <laughs> without even thinking about it. Well, I love it because it's, it's I'm blanking on her character's name, but Potts. Um, Janine. She, Janine, that's right. Uh, Janine is just running down this whole list of like, do you believe in this, that, and the other thing? And like, just gets primarily crazier and crazier, ending up with like the Loch Ness Monster and the Theory of Atlantis. And all he has back to say is like, if you're going to pay me, I'll believe whatever you want me to believe. And I just, that's the perfect mood for this character, where he's like, I just need a job, and you guys seem to be successful, so where do I sign? One of my favorite lines, actually, which, it's not, it's not his line, but he sets the line up, is mm-hmm. when they're either down showing him the containment facility, which, again, is very useful, because it's teaching the audience about this, like, where they put the ghosts after they've put them in the traps. They've got this thing, they slot the trap in, and mm-hmm. they, they press the buttons, and the, the ghost is in there. But they're explaining this all to him, um, and they're explaining that there's a lot of activity in the city, right? And it's like, oh, it's like there's a lot of this ecto activity going on, blah, 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 blah. And Egon says, imagine it was this Twinkie. The Twinkie would be this size. And once he's like, that's a big Twinkie. And then Venkman comes in, and this is right after he's, he's met Peck, so we'll go back and talk about that. But mm-hmm. he's like, oh, he's like, all this is going on. And Winston says, tell him about the Twinkie. And then Venkman turns and goes, what about the Twinkie? It's just dead pat. It's one of my favorite lines in the whole movie is yeah. what about the Twinkie? That's a solid line. I mean, they should have just used that as branding for a while, honestly. <laughs> oh, so good. Yeah. Peck shows up. He's a member of the E... EPA. EPA. There you go. Uh, and he's here to investigate what the Ghostbusters are actually doing and if they're doing anything dangerous with their their traps and their containment units and all that. He's very mm-hmm. inquisitive about that. Um, I, I, I know this is the stuff that gets a, a little bit of a critique in the sense that, you know, Ivan Reitman was an open Republican when he made mm. this, and this character's kind of meant to represent the idea that, oh, the government safety regulations can come in and, like, mess with working people and mess with yeah, us just like making the- money. The Carter era of, like, when we actually gave a damn about the environment for a brief period there. So, you know, you can sort of take that at face value, but uh, he's very good at being a prick, and it's enjoyable watching the others kind of fob him off. Obviously, there's not too much to this first scene. He just basically asks. The one thing that I really noticed, though, and really stuck out to me watching it this time, is that the scene pretty much starts with Venkman pointing out that he's a doctor, and then the mm. rest of the scene, Peck keeps saying Mr. Venkman intentionally to show yeah. that he clearly does not respect the fact that he's a doctor. And to be fair, we know that he probably shouldn't respect his doctorate because he is kind of just a quack. <laughs> it's, it's... Well, yeah, they, he specifically says, I have a doctorate in psychology and parapsychology. And it's at that point where he's like, oh, parapsychology. Yeah. Like psychic sense. Okay, I get who I'm dealing with here. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think that Peck is... Fully within his rights to come here and say, hey, you guys like have you're running a essentially unregulated business right now that may have major impacts to like the world at large. We would like to come in and study your equipment. He's totally in his rights to do that. But he does, like you say, come off as such an unlikable prick that it fully justifies everything else that happens later in this movie. I mean, it's especially when he comes back and he just he just insists that everything be turned off without any... Mm -hmm. Without even trying to listen to what the consequences for that might be, he just doesn't care. 
So yeah. that's the point where he's just a cartoon character that we can enjoy getting clowned on because he's making such a dumb choice. Even if there was a real regulator coming in here, they'd want to know what the effect was of turning this off before they did it. Yeah, if there, if I approach some unknown tech and there was a big red switch that said danger on it, which this movie has, yes. I would be hesitant to throw that switch. Regardless of what it should do, I'd still be hesitant. And it's clear that, obviously, we had the montage showing that we're being very busy, but even throughout the, this like next part, um, like you see like Ray and Winston coming back from like a late night job together and mm. like there's definitely this implication they've been working kind of pretty non-stop over these last few weeks tackling yeah. various ghost I, problems I think it's right before the peck scene it could be wrong but somewhere in there Janine basically stops and says like hey I haven't had a day off in like yeah. two months you said you'd hire on more people so clearly, I mean, it does a good job of showing time passing, but also showing that they are a lot better at this just over time. I think that when uh, Winston's first hired, Ray's just walking in with like four different traps while smoking a cigarette. It just gives this idea of like, this is commonplace now. This yeah, is something they, they have. Up. Yeah, they've gotten through the novice stuff. They are 100% professionals now. Yeah, and I think that stuff's uh, good. One of the things we've not really talked about, I don't know how much of it's been yet, but there's kind of a running little subplot that Janine clearly has the hots for Egon and oh, keeps yeah. and keeps asking him about his hobbies and he's like, I collect mucus, fungus, and something else. Spores. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, th- this is something that keeps coming up, particularly after, like, uh, uh, Lewis Tully, you know, Rick Morris' character ends up in their care. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a lot more of that going on there. Um but yeah so effectively peter goes to pick up dana for the date right mm-hmm. and when he goes up there obviously there's all this wreckage from the big demon dog attack that happened with tully but he goes up to the door and when she opens the door and you know in the first time you see the movie you don't know what he's going to find here because we, we yeah. sort of pulled into this closet of light but she opens the door and she's wearing this uh fancy red dress and her hair's all puffed up and she's being all seductive and she's like, hey, you're the key master. And he's and like... He just, <laughs> he just says no. And she just closes the door. <laughs> so he chaps at her again and when she says, hey, you're the key master, he's like, yeah, or at least I know him, but I'm going to meet him here. The, yeah, so, tell, tell him I'd swing by and meet up with you first. How's it going? I think what I like about this scene is that he does kind of catch on fairly quickly that she is just straight up possessed by something mm-hmm. um, and isn't really entertaining. Oh, he's playing along with her to sort of like keep her in line effectively. But, you know, he jokes about being tempted when she's like, oh, you know, do me right here, right now. But he never actually really like is tempted to do it. He just kind of nah. jokes around while sort of keeping her at bay. And he's like, look, Dana goes to sleep now. I need to call the <laughs> others and find out what the hell's going on. There's there's that line that you said before of like, oh, get inside me. And she's, he's like, I think there's already one or two people in there. That's too much for me. <laughs> yeah, and that, this is the, the famous line of, uh, you know, can I speak to Dana? And she's like, there is no Dana, only Zool. Only Zool. Uh, so this is where the main plot's really going, you know, all this stuff with the dogs and her being possessed by one, Tully being possessed by the other. He's running around the park talking to horses and yeah whatever else he he's he's far more of an exposition machine he's going around and it's like hey buddy who are you and he's like oh i'm vince clortho the key master i am looking for the 
the gatekeeper and he just like explains that's pretty much everyone he meets although i do want to say weirdest possible thing happened to me before i watched this yesterday uh-huh so he said his name's vince clortho and i immediately paused because the name vince clortho just immediately rang something in my head like i had seen that name within the past 24 hours of watching this movie and i had no idea how that could have even been possible because vince clortho is not a normal name turns out i had watched an episode of key and peel a comedy show on comedy central for anyone who's unaware and one of their sketches takes place at like a wizard school or something which is vince clortho's wizarding school and i just watched that the night before and i was like what are the odds that that happened Uh, they're slim (laughs) the slim yeah i agree very slim i think i think the overlap between key and peel watchers and ghostbusters in the same day is a little bit a little bit tiny of a little piece of the chart there i don't know i think jordan peel likes movies so he's probably you know Oh like, yeah, he would do it. That's why he named it that. Yeah. I'm sure he like he likes. I'm sure he likes Ghostbusters. Okay, yeah. <laughs> he's, I'm sure he's a fan. Uh, the police actually take Tully, like they pick him up because he's acting weird, and they take him mm-hmm. to Egon at the station, and he's like, "Hey, since this is a weird thing, and you guys are into this weird stuff, we thought maybe you'd like to have a look at." Him. I like to imagine that they've just been dropping off like schizophrenics for the past two months. And this is the first time that it's actually someone who's possessed by a ghost. I think the, the probably the most far-fetched part, to, to an extent anyway, is that they just leave him in Egon's custody. They don't, it's, it's not like they just stick around while Egon mm. has a couple of checks with him. He just... They just leave. And maybe you could say, oh, it's realistic because this cop just wants rid of him. He doesn't even care. He's just like, yeah, no, he just, doesn't want to do the paperwork. Yeah, just take him and I'll go... But it is kind of wild that he just leaves him with Egon. But I mean, in fairness, did he break any laws? Was it, or was he just being weird in public? Uh, being weird and bothering people, I guess. Yeah, they, they just... probably they probably picked him up in the same way that they pick up someone who's like, oh, I think like whoever your carer is is probably looking for you. We should try and keep you in a safe yeah. place. <laughs> I'd say it'd probably be like a drunken public sort of charge, if anything. So. They're on the phone to each other. They realize they've got the gatekeeper and the key master in different places and that they should probably not have them be together because that might, you know, cause something to happen. One thing that um, Tully says, though, while he's talking to Egon is specifically about how uh, Gozer, whenever they show up, they take a different form of destruction. And it's just hinting a little bit more of that exposition of what's going to happen at the end. Mm-hmm. So that morning is when Peck shows up with warrants and uh, police and whatnot and insists they turn the containment unit off. Uh, yep. And, you know, Janine tries to keep him out. Uh, they try to convince him this is a bad idea. Venkman shows up during this and tries to get it all stopped. But, of course, he gets this guy. And I love how the the, the little like engineer dude he's brought with them looks at this containment device like, I've never seen anything like this. Maybe we shouldn't go tinkering with it. Is it, I don't care what your opinion is, turn it off. I also love then Venkman tries to, like, intervene. He tries to get the way the cop holds him back. And then uh, Peck comes in. It's just like, if he does that again, you can shoot him. And the cop 100% is done with Peck. He's like, hey, <laughs> don't tell me how to do my job. 
You you work for the EPA. You don't have the authority to tell me to assassinate someone, you yeah. little shit. <laughs> exactly. Like, everyone knows that Peck is in the wrong here, but technically he has federal, like, top-down saying that this has to be done, so... Yeah, and this is the escalation to Act 3. This is, you know, the machine goes off, and all the ghosts start flying through the roof, and there's a bit of a flashing light show. There's, like, smoking lights coming from the station as they all run out. And, you know, like we see ghosts appearing around the city. There's the, the famous, mm-hmm. like, zombie taxi driver uh, bit and all this, which is, I think that's the one that's the most memorable of all these. But, you know, there's some little bits of chaos throughout. Yeah, I mean, they show Slimer coming back out in, like, a hot dog cart. But, yeah, yeah. For the most part, there's, I, I strangely enough, I, there's a similar sequence uh, somewhere around Ghostbusters 2. And a mm-hmm. bunch of the ones that I remember from Ghostbusters 2, I thought were in this one. So when they didn't happen, uh... I'm like, oh. Guess they're going to be in that one. Yeah, that's why at the moments where people criticize Ghostbusters Two and say it says it follows the formula, of the first one, because uh, mm-hmm. they kind of do that same bit around the same part of the movie. Um, yeah. I'm curious to see when we watch that again, though, next time, how much I agree with that statement because I don't remember thinking it was too much of a carbon copy, uh, yeah, plot wise. No, but but you know, we'll we'll see, we'll see. Mm-hmm. So Ghostbusters get arrested. Peck uh, gets them all arrested. And uh, we get the scene that we were kind of talking about earlier within the jail cell where they're... And it's kind of a funny scene setting-wise because you've got the four Ghostbusters looking at these, like, blueprints and maps and plans of the building mm-hmm. and Egon's explaining all this backstory. And I love how detailed it kind of is for something that is just a throwaway bit of backstory to explain the building. This is exactly mm-hmm. the sort of thing that some hack someday is going to make a whole movie about. Like, we're going to do the prequel about Ivo Shandor. I I could fully imagine there being like a season long arc on the animated show that's just all about the cult that Shandor made. And I can yeah I can expect them like that you know tapping back into the well of this character just to expand on it a bit. Like I'm not necessarily against that, but I can see them making a movie about this in the same way that oh somehow they got the plans for the Death Star. Wouldn't it be cool if we made a whole movie about that? It seems that somehow. Ivo Shandor has survived. <laughs> oh, but yeah, yeah, the funny part of the scene though is there's just all these random other like people who have been arrested just sort of listening and watching. At one point yeah. Veitman turns to one because are you getting all this so far? To just this random guy in like a leather jacket. <laughs> yeah. And every time they, the mood gets like a little bit too serious, like Egon or Ray's like that, like the end of the world, like everything is going to die if this happens. He just kind of lightens the mood. He just turns everyone else being like, well, so what do you do last weekend? And Winston's like, hey, I just started working here. I'm not really like in charge like these three guys oh, are. Yeah. Can I, can I just won- get out? <laughs> he, he, he turns to them being like, look, guys, you know you're my buddies, but like I'm going to get a different lawyer than you guys <laughs> because I think that's going to work better for me. But what's so good about this, though, is that the mayor obviously asked to see them, right? Because now, obviously, the whole city's reporting these weird ghost sightings and the building next to Central Park starting to have this vortex above it and all the rest of it. And when they get there, though, my my thing I love about Winston's inclusion is that while he was kind of trying to disassociate with them before, when all the actual debating starts coming up about this stuff and like, oh, do we really believe all this is going on? Winston's purpose in the movie kind of becomes clear. He is the normal everyday straight man who's able to just confirm that, no, I've been working here for a couple of weeks. That shit's real. And then he's got a really funny line where he's like, I've seen shit that would turn you white to, to a white <laughs> mayor, which is a really funny moment. Um, um, there was one tiny little beat I wanted to mention in between. Sure. Um, 
the cop who lets them out to go talk to the mayor is played oh, by I don't Reginald like Bell Johnson. Another diehard alum yep, from the future. Diehard, diehard <laughs> and he's also better known for Carl Winslow on Family Matters. And all yeah. I could think is like, wow, this man has never not been a cop. Like, yeah, Family Matters he, was not a hit in the UK or on at all. That's fair. So that's he, fair. he's the diehard cop uh, to me. Uh, <laughs> that's fair. I'll, I'll probably watch it someday because I like going back and working through old sitcoms that I've not seen. But uh, I mean, I have watched through it. You can basically skip season one. Like, you watch it, but don't. I'm too much of a completionist to. Do right, such right, a thing. right. I'm just saying, if you if you find that you have other things you need to do, that's okay. You can just okay. let it go. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, I, I honestly, this scene with the mayor is so good. Uh, mm-hmm. For for multiple reasons, you've got the debating with Peck and like you know, one of the, I think I think it's Ray that says this man has no penis. And yeah, he, he says like, oh, everything was going fine until Dickless over here turned off the containment grid, and the mayor's like, is that true? And then it's like, that's true. This man has no dick. Yeah, but then there's a follow up to it where he refers to him as Pecker, and he's like, my name's Peck. <laughs> but so that gets rid of him, right? But my favorite part, or well, not quite yet, but. My favorite part of all this is the way that Veikman appeals to the mayor, and this goes back into him being his like Saul right. Goodman like side of things. But it ties into what his attitude's been the whole movie because his attitude at the start of the movie is that I want to do this to make money. He's not really taking it seriously. It's all just to make money, maybe meet some women. <laughs> like that's all mm-hmm. he's been doing the whole time. He appeals to the mayor by saying, "Look, if none of this is true, then we all just go to jail. No harm, no foul. But if it is true," and we can stop this, then you're the mayor who saved, you know, X number a million. 44 million registered voters. Registered voters. He he pitches it to him like a business opportunity. It's almost as if he was pitching it to himself, right? As if he was mm-hmm. pitching it to himself the Ghostbusters scheme from the start and saying, hey, you could be a hero and make money by providing this service. This is enterprise. Yeah. He's basically appealing to that side of the mayor, and that's what convinces him he should do it. It's not It's not this, like, oh, you could be a hero and do something good for the sake of doing the right thing. You could be a hero, and that'll get you reelected. Yeah. That's how he appeals to him, and that's what's so good about this. Um, apart, you know, aside from the, uh, you know, the, the dickless joke and the, the mm. other things. And there's the- <laughs> There's the whole sequence where they're trying to say, like, okay, how bad is it really? And they just start listing off all these apocalyptic things of just, like, rivers of fire, volcanoes, darkness, blotting out the sky. I just really like that whole bit, because it's it's just more and more escalation until finally it hits Venkman, who's like, dogs and cats living, living together, mass hysteria. Yeah, there's also, in the middle of the scene, like, a bishop or something <laughs> comes into <laughs> the room, and, like, the mayor's, like, kissing his hand and... So, you know thank you father blah 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 and he's like officially I can't say what the church's stance is and all this phenomena but personally I think it's a message from God and I think the payoff to this is that when Venkman makes his pitch about hey you could save 44 million registered voters it cuts mm-hmm. to the priest and he just sort of like nods like yes he's right that's true right I just, I loved it this cynical idea that even the the, the, the spiritual man is like He's right. This could lead to great success for you, my friend. <laughs> Look, God helps those who help themselves. Wink, wink. <laughs> oh, dear. So, yeah, it's like, okay, the mayor's given them carte blanche to go save the city. So they get a police mm-hmm. escort. We get the Alessi song playing as they yep. drive to the building to try and save the day. 
And, um, you know, and I love that Venkman's like eating it up and he's like saying hello to the crowd and, <laughs> you know, just do, doing some like hyping as, as he's doing it. He's, he's always the showman. Yeah. Um, even to the point where when the ground starts to crack open and it looks like they might have died. From, I mean, obviously, you know, they didn't, but it's like, oh, yeah. they might have been swallowed by the earth. They climb back out, the crowd starts cheering and Venkman starts like, well, they want to play rough? We can play rough. Like, we, we can do this. I would... I would kill to see an alternate cut of this movie where they did die in that moment. And then, like, we just see the whole Gozer thing continue on. Like, that would be an amazing ending to this movie. Yeah. Again, it's still a comedy. So, you know, they play this for a laugh, but it does a harsh cut from this, like, heroic, we're going to go save the day, to them climbing the stairs and just being, like, out of breath and miserable and struggling to get up there. Yeah, the line's like, oh, wh- wh- what floor are we on? And he's like, I don't know, somewhere in the teens. He's like, cool. When we get to 20, let me know. I'm going to throw up. Yeah, I think Dana's floor is 22, because our door number was like 2206. But I, you okay. know. I mean, I, I didn't check it that much, so I'll take your word for it. I just, I, just, I just happened to notice the number in our door at one point. So I wonder if I checked, like, Ghostbusters Day. Like, there is Alien Day. I wonder if, like, June 22nd would be it, because that's Dana's door number. That one's a bit of a stretch. That's the stretch, not the planet number from the first one that was only mentioned like twice. Uh, first of all, it's the the planet that the entire second movie set on as well. Mm, that's true. <laughs> and it's mentioned a bunch in that one as well. So it's, I I forgot that they came back to the same planet in the second one because it was such a long time span between the two. Plus, the planet where the beacon that has the alien ship on it is a bit more prominent than just the random number that happens to be on Dana's door. Everyone, I'm really sorry that I activated Pete's alien defense here. That's my fault. I'm I'm sorry. Ask stupid questions, get stupid answers. I mean... That's, no, yep, they are stupid answers. So... <laughs> so yeah, they climb up to the top, they get into uh, Dana's room, which is just completely blasted shreds because... Somewhere in all this, we've got to mention... Uh, it was when the ghosts were flying around yeah. and doing well, stuff. Yeah, they were flying around. Uh, at the Dana's room literally just explodes because she wakes up from her nap. And then Lewis meets up with Dana. They say, I'm the key master, I'm the gatekeeper. And they head up this stairwell well, to go up on. to the roof. They kiss first, and I love the detail yes. here that she holds him like like he's the woman. Like she sort of... Yeah. You know, has him cradled in her arms, and I, I just love that detail. She she dips him, and then they they walk up hand in hand up the stairs to this sacrificial altar slash doorway yeah. to another dimension. Where it's subtly implied that they had sex. Um, I say subtly because this is something that Afterlife doesn't do subtly, where they just have to have the the characters like, did we? Uh, yeah, I think we did. Oh, oh, that's a bit risky, isn't Ooh. it? Uh, and I'm, I just, I just, I love the idea that I, I just the conversation later on, after the credits of Roll, where Dana turns to to Venkman and goes, "You know, I think I mean, I had sex with that little man last night." <laughs> I mean, to be fair, it seems like they don't remember anything at all that's once true. they get possessed, so yeah. they would have no idea. That's true. That's true. That's true. Uh, so yeah, there's this magical staircase leading to the the roof with the altar and mm-hmm. all that shit. Uh, Ghostbusters get up there and. Even this isn't without its 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 share of jokes. Even though we're in the big climax and we're doing the big face off, like they do mm-hmm. the big shots, they've got this fantastical set, lots of dry ice. Oh yeah, uh, Gozar comes out, and you know it's this this kind of like woman in like a skin tight 
like yeah, it's like an androgynous looking woman like david bowie style yeah with yeah very red eyes yeah at one point one of them yells aim for the flat top because of her haircut <laughs> yeah uh, also at this point dana and lewis have transformed back into their dog forms and so they're just like the pets of gozer at this point yeah yeah and it plays out they, they try and like venkman sends ray up to talk to her first and she's like are you a god and he's like no well, first <laughs> is the final the payoff to the library scene oh yeah, that yeah. you were wanting where it's it's like all right well someone's gonna have to go deal with her venkman turns to ray go get her ray <laughs> actually i think i was even more confident than that i was like nah like we'll deal with this we've got this covered go talk to her ray <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, so they all get zapped back and all, all the rest of it and then they, they pull out their proton packs okay and then there's that the other mm-hmm. the line that everyone always remembers from this part which is that show this bitch how it's done downtown yeah um or how we do things downtown and they try and zap her doesn't go a whole well she does a whole big jump and all the rest of it um and she goes all like ethereal and turns into just the voice and they're yeah. all kind of freaking out and she says you know, like, what, one of you need to pick what you're... Yeah, choose the form of the Destroyer. F- form of the Destroyer, yeah. And they're all like, no, no, don't think of anything, don't think of anything. You know, she wants us to pick. And immediately, immediately after Vinkman tells that to the other three, their choice has been made. Yeah. He's like, wait, I didn't pick anything. Egon, did you pick something? Winston, oh, did you pick flank. something? And then I love that he doesn't ask Ray. They all just turn and look at him. So again, it's just a visual comedy beat. It's yeah. what makes it so funny. And then just in such a quiet little voice, Ray's like, it, "It just popped in there. I, I don't know how. It's. I was just thinking." And then immediately, Egon sees something down the street. He's like, "Look!" And Ray is just like baffling. He's like, "No, it couldn't be. There's no way." And as we finally, it steps into frame. He's like, "It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man." And dear, that is the moment. That exact moment is where I. I would have killed to be in the original theater during that moment. Cause that is the most just deadbeat. Like no one could have possibly have seen that coming level of comedy. It is almost absurdist humor in that way, but it's just so well paced. So well done. I love that comedic beat. It's such an escalation from the opening, like half hour of the movie. Like, I don't think mm-hmm. when you first saw this movie in the eighties, you could have imagined that the ending was going to have a hundred foot tall marshmallow man nah. walking around like a kaiju uh it's just such an absurd ending to to this thing that started off with these guys starting a business that's that's what the movie was it yeah. was three guys starting a business and trying to make money and it's kind of cynical and you know mm-hmm. uh, it, yeah so obviously the whole thing here is oh let's just cross the stream is that might work uh, i do love mm-hmm. though before they try that when they just try blasting it uh you get a great wide shot of like the the proton beams like hitting it from like a, like a really wide angle and it's yeah. just really cool to see because everything else is just mostly close-ups. You don't really see the, the the beams from that distance. And it just looked quite cool, the the effect. And there's a lot of cool map patents here, the city and things like that mm-hmm. to create, you know, complete the effect shots and all yeah, the rest of it. Yeah, it definitely feels like they set up probably like a decent-sized miniature set just to be able to have the Stay Puft Man be able to march down the streets like yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. I, I think this, is, this goes back to what I was saying earlier where... The map patents obviously don't look real. You can tell they're map patents, but they look good. This is the difference between like bad mm-hmm. CG and like a map patent, which is obviously a map patent, but it's still like really good artwork. Like someone's put the effort in and made this yeah. gorgeous looking painting to, to represent the rest of the city. So it's it's like what those uh posts I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the artist, but those posters for like Indiana Jones 
that had like the real uh, painterly style Drew to them. Streisand, though, I say. Streisand, okay. It's it's that sort of thing where people have imitated his style, but nobody has quite hit that little extra like mark to it. No one yeah. ever quite hit it just as well as he did. It's the same sort of thing. These map paintings are solid. They are very, very good map paintings. But like when you see a bad map painting, you know it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, whereas this is still very visually pleasing to the eye. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they cross the streams and the dust plays out, uh, you know, the ending, which, you know, there's some chaos, the state puff marshmallow man explodes. They're also fully expecting and kind of willing to die at this point. Like they're like, all right, well, that's what's going to take to save New York. We cross the streams and we see on the other side. Yeah. They get really cocky before the voice starts talking to them, actually, where they think they've won. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, this is the part of the movie that, as a kid, made me want to go swimming in shaving foam. Because that's what this is. <laughs> it's just shaving foam landing on people in the street. And yeah. it made me... Because like, cause all the Ghostbusters get covered in it. Except, <laughs> funnily enough, Venkman, who must have just been hiding in the right place, where he's just got like a little bit in his shoulder. And I think this yeah. is just a visual gag. The idea that the sleazy one got away with not being covered in the, in the, the marshmallow. But the mm. other three are all just covered in, like, chunks of shaving foam. Um... That is a good visual yeah. joke. It feels it feels like he was hiding behind Ray, probably. <laughs> yeah. Because Ray got drenched. He was covered in it. Oh, dear. So, yeah, it turns out uh, Dana and and Lewis are fine, but they're inside, like, the sort of the, the, the now statues of the dogs. So they, they, they break mm. them out, and that's kind of where things uh, wrap up. And immediately Lewis yep. is like, hey, who does your taxis, Ghostbusters? Uh, I could uh, <laughs> help with that. Yeah, and then as they're leading him away, it's just like, well, you've been part of a very supernatural event. We'd like to take a part of your brain, if that's okay. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> uh, and the final line of the movie is Winston yelling, I love this town. Yep. Uh, and then the there's actually like an epilogue, I guess you could call it that, but it is literally the credits have already started playing. So it's kind of just a credit scene as well. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I didn't say it was the final scene. I just said it was the final line. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, for sure. I just, I, I I don't see many movies that have done this where the story continues, like, as the credits are rolling over top. I mean, it's just them. Um, you know, the theme song plays as they're going out into, it's the morning now in the street and they're going uh, into the car. Uh, mm-hmm. Time must have passed a little bit here. Uh, yeah. Because it was only just getting dark when they went into the building and it's not been that long. But it, it does kind of make sense that they went back to Dana's place and she got, like, her bathrobe or something and, like, get changed out of the dress because she's wearing, yeah. like, you know, some different stuff. I uh, mean, they would have had to literally pass through her apartment on the way down, so very makes true. sense. I suspect they I, maybe sat around for a little bit and get their energy back before the trip back down. Yeah, they cleared themselves of foam. They had to take a shower. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, uh, I do, like, yeah, that is very clearly a... um just kind of like a continuity thing that probably it shouldn't have been the next morning by the time they came down but i i almost was willing to completely forgive it because if you notice it's light still like almost nighttime but it's Mm. light when they go into the building but then if you remember the portal thing over top causes darkness like it 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 was just completely blotting out the sun Mm. so i thought that it was only dark because of the portal and once Ah. they cleared it off then it's, you know, back to daytime. However, once they clear off the portal, they make it very clear that, like, no, it's a starry night and the sun has set. So, yeah, yeah. Almost had it, and then just one shot kind of ruined that theory. Ah, it's not a big deal. It's, it's nah. about as mad as you get. Uh, it's basically just everyone waving. Uh, Venkman mm-hmm. kisses Dana. 
uh, they're kind of waving to the crowd. They get in the car and they leave. It's just a, a nice little farewell. Except, except for Lewis, who's like, hey, I was also up there. Anybody want to interview me? And instead of getting in the car with everyone else, he's led aside by medical professionals. He could probably use a trip to the hospital, to be fair. Uh, yes, but if that's the case, Dana should too. There's <laughs> no reason he should have been separated from the group. I just, I love the idea that Dana's going with the Ghostbusters and they're all just going to go and get a big lunch or something just to like unwind after a hectic I, night of whatever I that mean, was. <laughs> I, I fully expect them going back to the mayor just and mm. probably finding Peck as well and just being like, so... Let's talk about how you're going to refund us here for some <laughs> of our uh, pain and suffering. Well, I have to imagine there was enough witnesses of the 100-foot-tall uh, Marshmallow Man to you know, just give them some credibility. I, I want to I see two extra scenes. The first one is them talking to the mayor, and the mayor's like, why did the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man, that came out of nowhere, and Ray just shies and is like, I don't know. That was weird. Who, why would that have happened? Yeah, and then the second one is somewhere on like Wall Street or something. There's an executive of the Stay Puffed com- company who sees that walking down the street, and he's like, "Oh God damn it!" <laughs> yeah, oh, we should mention Peck just showed up so he could get covered in uh, shaving foam in the yep. final, which makes sense. The asshole of the movie has to get his little comeuppance at the end. That, oh it's, yeah, it's just one oh one. Um, I, I, I think. What's so good about Ghostbusters is that it's the perfect marriage between the comedy and actually mm-hmm. escalating to a fun and good plot for the third act, which I find that, mo- like I said earlier, most comedies tend to struggle with, yeah. is when they try and get more serious in the third act or try to actually have something that has feels like a payoff. And then there's some comedies where they won't even bother really trying. They'll, they'll just kind of, they'll, they'll do like a little thing to make it feel like it's the end of a story. But for the most part, you were just there for the jokes anyway. This actually feels like it builds to a conclusion. There's stakes, but it's funny the whole way through. It's very impressively balanced and well paced. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I think it's because the stakes are so cartoonishly large. Like it literally mm. is the fate of humanity as a whole, and these four schmucks from New York are the only ones who can save the day. Like it, it's an inherently funny concept if you look at it from that perspective obviously they play it somewhat straight in that you know this is an end of the world scenario they aren't like saying that that's a stupid thing to begin with but like you said the characters just managed to keep the zingers coming they managed to keep a lighthearted tone throughout even when they are literally accepting their death we we have a beat just to register the somberness of that and then Venkman jumps up with like i love this plan it's a good plan i'm happy to be a part of it and then just runs into the fray like everyone still has fun the whole way through in a weird way that like i think venkman doing that and saying hey let's be positive about this right because we're going to save the world it's almost like a nice little like final note to his character because the Mm -hmm. whole movie he's been this cynical guy who's just been doing it for the money and he's been very entertaining it's never really been a problem where you feel like he needs a big character arc or redemptive moment or anything like that but this idea that he's got that attitude about sacrificing themselves to save the world, it's like, oh, he's a, he is good at heart. Like, ultimately, he's still a good guy underneath. Like, oh, yeah. it's not a big thing, but it's kind of there because he's the one with that attitude. He's there mm-hmm. to inspire the rest. And if he is the guy who's able to talk things up and, like, sort of pep them all, it feels like he's even doing that here. He's, he's given them all the sort of the boost of confidence to be like, yeah, we should do this. That's 
try and save the world. So yeah, there's there's, there's, a, there's a little thing there. I, I, mm-hmm. I think it's just sometimes you just straight lightning with a concept, and I think the idea of an emergency service thing that's for mm-hmm. ghosts and they have a car you can ring them like an emergency service maybe once now that they've done this maybe they'll be added to 911 where you just phone 911 and it'll reroute you through if you're going to them. what's your emergency my dad died 10 years ago <laughs> and like that's just such a cool concept because it's inherently funny and there's so many ways you can see it going wrong but when you have th- this cast who are all very funny right obviously Murray's at the head of that but you know, we, we've praised Moranis. Sigourney Weaver plays the great straight woman kind of in the middle of all this, who's kind of endeared to the goofball yeah. that is Bill Murray's character. She plays a great straight woman, but then the moment she becomes Zool, she immediately like changes characters entirely, and she's still just as engaging. I have to imagine like, the appeal of this character for her, because like, up until this point, the idea that spooky things are happening, she's scared. Not that it's exactly like Alien by any means, but mm. she's already like got a character where she's like dealing with scary things in a very serious way. I have to imagine part of the appeal of this was that oh, in the third act, I get to be like the evil one. I get to be possessed, yeah. and I get to I get to be over bit. the top. Exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I think there's there's an appeal there probably for her. Um, oh, absolutely. As as someone who has done like smaller acting roles and stuff like that, not in any actual productions, but like any time that there is permission to ham it up those are always the best ones because you get mm. to just have fun with it. Yeah. Uh, it's full of memorable characters. Even Winston, who like comes in halfway through the movie, uh, like n- never when I think of the Ghostbusters, do I think of it being anything other than four of them, even though mm. like it starts off with just the three and like, they're the ones who set up all the plot, but I still think of it as four, even from this first movie, because by the time you get to that final big, you know, third act, it feels just as important to the the team uh, as any of the yeah. others do, except maybe like Venkman, like I say, feels kind of like the main one. But as far as Ray and Egon go, he feels just as equal to them as far as like what he brings to the table. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I I think that this is a great movie if you need to like kind of break down a group dynamic and see how different people can fill different roles. This is a great movie to show how despite the fact that everyone is so different in personality, they all come together as a cohesive whole of you feel like this is a team working together as the Ghostbusters. Yeah, and they all mostly serve different purposes to represent the audience in different ways. Venkman is like cynical and skeptical, and that kind of like sinks into the idea that we're going to be like, well, we don't really believe in ghosts, so there should be a character who kind of fulfills that kind of feeling. Ray is this the more earnest, genuine, like, wonderment, like you said. He wants to believe in this stuff, and he's like, impressed by it and is fascinated by it. Uh, Egon is kind of, like, the the functional one to explain the, the exposition yeah. and make it all work together. He, he's the one that changes it from fantasy to science fiction, pretty yeah. much. And then, like we said, Winston's the everyman who comes in is able to react to things and give us that perspective. They all mm-hmm. kind of fulfill different elements of what the audience might be reacting to the movie with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's also another little genius thing that the, the movie's yeah. done. But And I think in terms of comedy, each of them also has like their own distinct style as well. Yes. If even just delivery. Like you don't get sick of the way the jokes are told because they each tell them in a very different way. 
And the thing I, I want to emphasize the most, I think, after this viewing, is just how well-paced it is. Like, yeah. I, mean, I said that earlier, but it is so well-paced. It's a tight 105-minute movie. It's Every scene's setting something up. It's, you know, it's either setting something up or it's paying off something and making you laugh. And it's doing that the whole time. And the fact that it can do that and actually give you this fully f- fleshed-out concept... It does have all these things that you love to talk about, like the car, the proton packs, like all, all the other things that make up what the Ghostbusters are. They're not the important things, but they're definitely ingredients in the pie. It's yeah. a full thing, and it, it really is lightning in a bottle, and why any attempts to kind of copy this and mimic it with other concepts. I'm not talking about the sequel or even like things that have tried to continue Ghostbusters. I'm talking about just anything that tried to be the next Ghostbusters Right. including something like evolution or anything like that it's so difficult like to 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 put the things together the way this movie has and it's what makes it so special and i think most of us growing up watching it it's really easy to like not realize how special that is but until you've spent years looking for things that are as good as it in the same vein yeah. and just never been able to find them because they just don't really exist so it's what makes yeah. it truly really special and like a, a one of a kind concept that just works on its own. So, yeah, no, I mean, just wholesale agree with everything you said there. It's it's lightning in a bottle, and I think that is the as we get to it next week. That is the sort of thing that how do you make a Ghostbusters two? Then how do you capture lightning in a bottle? You get the exact same cast back. You get everybody returning. How can you continue that lightning in a bottle again? And for the record, going into it, you know, we'll see exactly what my opinion is next next episode. But I like Ghostbusters too. I'm not one of these people who thinks it's just a yeah. a crappy sequel. Which I I know a lot of people who were around. I mean, I was alive at the time, but I was like, <laughs> you know, uh, it was the year I was born it came out. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I remember Ghostbusters two as good, but I definitely remember it having some level of pacing issues. Sure, sure, even, even back then. So, but we'll I remember arguably liking the villain more than the first oh, yeah. one so i mean if if you told me picture the villain from ghostbusters i immediately go to the ghostbusters 2 villain i don't even picture mm-hmm. gozer yep that's fair that's fair so we'll, we'll see how our feelings of that hold up i think what's funny about two is that dana's got a baby in two mm-hmm. and i just I, I just i love to make the joke that i relate to the baby because it's the year i was born so I, i'm literally the baby's age oh yeah <laughs> when we'll the see. movie came out <laughs> i'll watch the cast and see who played the baby we'll see what he's up to oh dear all right i think we're ready to rate ghostbusters david what are you uh what are you giving it i'm going the 10 oh okay and to be fair that is actually the first 10 i've ever given on collector's cut i've given nines before but like this the thing that i said and the reason i always held back from tens is because it needs to be that little bit of extra special something to me personally it needs to be something that i have a deeper attachment to than just the quality of the film is fantastic but i think the quality of the film is fantastic and i have the attachment to this it's something that i can go back to over and over again i got genuine laughs out of it it's it's just a like you said, lightning in a bottle. It's such a well-made movie that it's amazing that it hasn't been more driven into the ground. You know, it's amazing that this isn't something that had sequel after sequel throughout the entirety of the nineties. So yeah, no, I'm just going to go flat 10 and I'm not looking back. 
All right. Uh, I just double check because I was curious. I've never given a ten in collector's cut either. Okay. Is is this going to be the first time? Yeah. Criterion cut. I have given a ten. Oh yes, same. Yeah, of course. Uh, on the Atomic Cinema Expert or Sci-Fi Movie Podcast, I have given a couple tens, but mm-hmm. uh, not on this show yet. Uh, no, I'm not going to ten. I, I don't. Okay. I can't give it the perfect score. For me, this has just kind of always been a nine out of ten, and that's what I'm going to give it. Uh, okay. Today, it's a fantastic movie. It's lightning in a bottle. Um, I, I don't know what would make it go up to a ten. I, I, I think on some level, I just have. I don't think I've ever given a comedy a ten. And I, I, oh, I think okay, that's fair. Part of me thinks I just never will, and I think it's there's a certain element of just not being emotionally as seriously invested in what's happening. This is definitely the, like as best as it can be in a pure comedy as to how much I care about the plot. But there is definitely a ceiling there, and I think mm-hmm. um, Ghostbusters is, is the is the absolute height of that ceiling. But I, I don't think I've ever given a ten to a pure comedy. Uh, That's so, fair. Something that has comedy in it, sure. But this is a comedy first, and I think uh, it's why it's you know as, as far as something that is a first and foremost a comedy. It's in it may, I don't know if it's my favorite, but it's definitely in that sort of top five uh, range. Okay. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't, I, I get what you're saying there. I, I can see the comedies, you know, there is that little bit of an emotional barrier between you and the movie when it is a comedy. But for me, it's just, maybe it's just the nostalgia talking. Maybe it is the sort of thing. By the way, I have never seen Afterlife. So oh, once really? we hit those nostalgia scenes, I'm fully expecting to be like, stop pandering to me, you bastards. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it, maybe it's just nostalgia talking, but like, it is something that, it's it's almost a level of like comfort food, but at the same time, it's incredibly well done comfort food. Either way, it's like I, sure. it's like as if my comfort food were filet mignon. Like, great, awesome, and I'm glad I have it. So, yeah. Beyond that, does it make the cut, Pete? I mean, it's a cut above. That's not that, yeah. that's not All dance right. around it. <laughs> it's so nice to have a cut above. We've been, we've had so many seasons lately where it's just like not been there. We've not had one since Nolan season. Yep. I'm glad we have it. Yeah. Uh, it's a special movie. It's a big thing in pop culture mm-hmm. uh, and all the other things we've already said. Uh, and we broke two hours on this episode, so Woo. that's fun. It's a good thing that we don't stop at the length of the movie itself, because then YouTube thinks we're just posting the movie and they get really angry at us. <laughs> no, we exceeded it <laughs> this yep. time. Perfect. Uh, it's funny, though, because, you know, we, we were going through the movie, and I'm like, oh, God, we're actually quite a bit into this review, and we're only at this part of the movie. And we kind of sped up a little bit towards the end. The mm-hmm. one that I'm worried about when we do it on the Ace is Back to the Future, because... Oh, God, yeah. Because me and Tara <laughs> actually tried to do it back to the end. I think it was a technical fault, like, halfway through that stopped the recording. But I think we were almost at two hours, and I swear we were only halfway through the plot. <laughs> That's fine. Because I, I mean... had so much to say on every scene in that movie. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not gonna. I don't want to spoil anything too much. But if I have like, uh, if there's a secondary comfort food, it's Back to the Future, oh, like yeah. hands down. I love that trilogy. So prepare for the epic nine hour trilogy review. Oh yeah. So yeah, if you want to hear me and David talk about sci fi movies, he is now the regular co host on the Atomic Serum Experiment. He has been for a couple months now. Uh, go go check out that uh, mm-hmm. on the same channel on YouTube or as its own podcast feed, the Atomic Serum Experiment. Anyway, 
Uh, speaking speaking of promoting things, um, yes. if you want to support us over at patreon.com slash TV, you can do that and get some bonus shows. Uh, every patron gets access to the Criterion Cut, which is our monthly show where we review movies from the Criterion Collection. Those tend to be very highly rated because they're some of the best movies ever made. Yep. So check out that. Uh, $5 and up patrons get access to Extra Reels, which is the opposite of that. It's some of the worst movies ever made. Um, and I saw something this past couple of days, David, that... <sighs> In theory, should be an Extra Reels episode someday, although I'm not convinced we'd actually be able to fill a whole episode talking about it because it's, it's that much of a non-movie that I oh, don't God. think we could actually talk about it for like an hour or so. I just don't think Wait, we could. Was this a stream movie? It was a stream movie. I think I know the one you're talking about. And I've already seen that, so I'm going to just say no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do it again. I don't want to be there. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to watch it again either. I, I think we could just leave it. Yeah, all right. I'm good with that. Okay. You know, one day I'm going to like they're going to make me do a goal where where it becomes an extra reels episode. As long as you set up a competing goal to not do it, and I will donate as much as I have to. <laughs> uh, Says so I can profit very well from that. Thank you very much. I don't care if it's insider trading. I'm doing it. <laughs> anyway, that has been our thoughts on Ghostbusters, big classic. Hopefully, you've enjoyed us reminiscing, talking about various scenes. Uh, and we'll see you next week for obviously Ghostbusters 2 so thank you very much for joining us, we always appreciate it, keep watching movies and if you can get it, it's always nice to have a diplomatic immunity